special edition of Rankin Review. I don't know how you imagined this Rankin Review was going to go, but this is it. We're doing it now. <laughs> I have a very, very special guest here, um, Scott Lehman, well, who I, I've known as long as I've been alive. Yes, say hello, Scott. Hey, hello. <laughs> hello, it's me. Uh, Depends on what you mean by special, I guess, but <laughs> either way I qualify. I have been looking forward to having you on the show, because I really think if there was no Scott Lehman, there would be no Rankin Review. Oh. I think that you and your sister are very much responsible for me not just liking horror movies, but having some sort of special crazy fixation on them. <laughs> so is this a thanking, or are we to to, uh, to blame? It's, it's our fault that you are the way you are? Is that... uh, I'm here to say thank you, but I think most of my therapists would have already said I'm beyond help. So, you know... <laughs> This studio is much like I imagined it. With all the, there's a lot more pornography on the wall than I pictured. Yeah. It also doubles and, uh, as a kill room. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a great stack of soiled hustlers beside me. There you go. Yeah, I think what was the first movie we watched together? The first one of the Friday the Thirteenth was that. Probably. I remember you covered your eyes through most of it. And, yeah, you know, I have memories of watching <laughs> classic horror movies with you. Evil Dead Two, for example. 
when I watched it with you and your sister, it was terrifying to me. Right? I was scared of it. But I was eight. Right? <laughs> I don't know where parental, where parental supervision was, but we were watching movies that we shouldn't have been watching while we were in the single-digit age category. And Scott, being a couple years older than I, he, he'd, he'd seen them and knew the good ones and knew, you know, oh, you got to see this one. I love this one. It's got blood and tits yeah. in it. Prom Night 2 is the tits. <laughs> like, uh, so, um, yeah, at a young age. Uh, you're right. I spent a lot of my time with my head under the blanket or, or watching it, plugging my ears. That was one of my favorite ways to the get sound. around the scare because the sound was what would really would, would really scare me for some reason. No, that makes sense. It's all the screaming and the sound of the knife going through a person's head is yeah. that stuff to you. Scott has a comparable movie collection to me, I think. Do you think? It's pretty close anyway. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, it's you not a competition. It's well, not a competition. I know, I, how much you got? <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't actually count them because if I do that, then I start doing the math about how much money has been spent. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it's best not to. Let's, let's move on from that. <laughs> Um, enough that I can, you know, do a podcast and do 30 straight episodes without reaching outside of my collection. Of, uh, oh, that's impressive. <laughs> um, the other reason this is special is that, unprecedentedly, uh, Scott has driven all the way from Edmonton to Saskatoon to do this podcast. He is, he's faced hours of Canadian Highway <laughs> to be here with me today. So this is a special occasion for it's me. A beautiful prairie drive. <clears throat> Enjoyed it. I thought it would be really good of us to do slasher movies specifically, considering that that seemed to be the genre of horror movie that we seemed to most like when we were kids for some reason. It wasn't the monster movies and it wasn't ghost stories. It was like people being killed by masked maniacs for some reason. Maybe it's this simple simple storyline. It's easy for a kid to follow, and you usually get a couple boobs in there. And Absolutely. <laughs> I know definitely it was part of it is the forbidden fruit. Right. I mean, we're not supposed to see that level of violence. To see this, yeah. And we're not supposed to see boobies. And uh, and with these movies, we get to see both. And uh, I, I'm sure, like again, I was fascinated with this stuff before I even understood why I was fascinated with this stuff. You know, because why would an eight year old be fascinated with sex and violence? We already had a really good, you know, understanding of it. But I we were. I can't explain that. That's yeah. <laughs> We wrote novels. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Illustrations. Illustrated novels that are just <laughs> just dressed up rip-offs of Friday the 13th. You got much further along in yours. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, that that was the level of imagination that got sparked in us by them. Like, it, And um, I think that, the, that you were so into it, too, kind of made it okay for me to be into it. Because I always looked up to you. Oh, Still kind of do. You're a role model. Yeah, Just deal I'm, with I'm it. A, I'm a fucking role model. <laughs> cheers, by the way. All right, cheers. <laughs> Let's go. Okay, so, yeah, I decided that uh, I kind of force-fed you this first podcast, and hopefully you'll do another one with me someday. But Well, we'll see how this one goes if you <clears> want <throat> me to do another one. But I, I will want you to do another one. I just think it's weird that it's taken this long to get these six movies reviewed on here. Like, these <laughs> it's are, true. This should have been episode one or, or two. This is, these are your grandfather. Uh, these are your... Yeah, well, it, I don't really go chronologically. Like I said, uh, well, the first of the Alien franchise that was reviewed on <laughs> on my podcast was Aliens vs. Predator Requiem. <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. that just doesn't yeah. seem right, does it? No, no. But, um, yeah, slasher cinema a history. Uh, since we have such rich history together and we love slasher movies so much, who better than to talk with me about 
I think, sort of the six of the more important, influential establishment of the genre entries of slasher horror movies would be. And uh, these were the six I picked. Were, were there any like loud omissions out of those six? Do you think I should have switched one out for another? Well, I don't know. Yeah, you could... You... One that possibly like my bloody Valentine could maybe made mm-hmm. it in there, the original one, or even a child's play or I considered Black Christmas but, as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's but I, I decided to first. save that for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. so. I, I brought some stats on these six films actually, because I'm a sports guy too, so uh, okay. so sports guys like stats, but including sequels, remakes and T V we're talking about six films which led to forty five movies. So and, far. So far, yeah, 45 movies and three TV series based on them, <laughs> and then inspired countless others. So in this week that I watched these movies, I watched 29 people die, some people very violently, and uh, 29 people and three animals. There were three animals as well, if we can get to that three and see if you remember those. Oh, well, skill testing question. There you are. See if you I know. Animal abuse. One was for real, too. Yeah, the snake. Yeah. The snake. I remember that one for sure. Well, just just for the cheap seats, the uh, six movies that we are going to look at. Um, Psycho, made by this obscure director, Alfred Hitchcock. Um, What's he done? Not much lately, actually. (laughs) He's kind of slowed down in his output. We have Toby Hooper's establishing uh, film, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. No Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I think no career for Toby Hooper. So, uh, is that a good or bad thing? We will discuss. Um, When a Stranger Calls. I would say arguably the most obscure title out of these list of six, but the most classic in its slasher structure of the babysitter and the phone calls and uh, that sort of suspense. Of course, we have Halloween from John Carpenter. Mm -hmm. We have the knockoff of Halloween, unabashedly, Friday the 13th. And then, going all the way, I think, to 1984, we've come now. It's pretty recent. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street, which is the movie that kind of took the slasher genre to the next level. And it seemed like that would be a good place to, to stop. There they are. There's a lot of bloodletting to get uh, <laughs> to get into here. So we dive in, or is there anything else you'd like to say by way of introduction? Uh, no, I think we're ready to go. Let's do it, Let's brother. Let's roll. quiet little motel when in fact it has now become known as the scene of the crime you have a vacancy oh we have 12 vacancies you know this is the first place that looks like it's hiding from the world i think that we're all in our private traps clamped in them And none of us can ever get out. Is anyone at home? Oh, that, uh, that must be my mother. All right. In 1960, I believe. Uh, yes, 1960. Out comes Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Alfred Hitchcock is already a huge name, of course, at this point. Um, you know, people will go to the movies based on him making it. And uh, this is based on a novel by Robert Bloch. But on its surface, it wouldn't seem like something that would really interest uh, Hitchcock in that it's appallingly simple in a lot of ways, almost too much so to, to you know, at the time, arguably, Hitchcock was the greatest living director. Okay. So why is he making this movie psycho? 
I think the reason he was making the movie Psycho is not because he was trying to create the slasher film genre, which is what he kind of did with making this movie. But I think he read the script and really locked on to this idea of having the audience connect with this one main character for the first 40 minutes of the film. And have this is our protagonist. This is who's carrying us through this movie. And then ripping the carpet out from underneath the audience by killing her. Like, definitely killing her. She's not maybe dead. (laughs) Like, she is fucking dead. Yeah, it's the the Marion Crane story. Yeah. And I think that's what really, really got him excited about doing it. Because I think Hitchcock's a guy who likes to fuck with his audience. Oh, sure. And he liked the idea of the people in the audience going, What happens now? We are in a whole new territory. Because the movie shifts gears. Now our main character is Norman Bates. And who's Norman Bates? Yeah. Or is it is it his mother who's the main character now? Yeah. What I, well, first of all, I made a mistake. I I watched the remake by accident. <laughs> no, I didn't. You know what? Actually, funny about the original Psycho is the last movie of the Psycho series that I had actually watched. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, it was later in my adult years when I, I knew about Psycho and heard of it, and I, I basically knew the story of it. And I saw Psycho two when I was in grade school, like <laughs> elementary school, and and then saw the further sequels and. Uh, of course, Psycho 2 opens up with the shower scene in Psycho, so you're kind of well acquainted with what happens. It wasn't until later on when I finally thought, okay, I'm gonna. I was in a in a shitty hotel room in Lloydminster <laughs> when I I got a chance to see Psycho. So right, I'm gonna watch Psycho now, and uh, maybe it helped the mood because it was a really a grimy hotel. Yeah. And uh, so I watched that, and you got to go into that movie not pretending you don't know anything about it because it's at true. this point everyone you know about Psycho, everyone knows about whether you've seen it or not. You just got to go in with that frame of mind, like the original audience that... Coming in naked, going, yeah. pure, not knowing anything about it. And uh, so I just kind of cleared my mind, said, okay, I'm, I'm that audience member. I know nothing about Psycho. I don't know who Norman Bates is. I, I know nothing. And, and it's amazingly easy to clear my mind, I found. So, <laughs> uh, and it's, yeah, you're right. It's You're watching, and I kind of forgot it was a Psycho movie. You're, we're with the main character for... It becomes a story about her fleeing with some stolen money and... Mm-hmm. What I will say, I mean, I'm a big... I, I like the movie. I do. I do. Um, I've worked in theater, as you know, um, and uh, we used to take old classic films and make fun of them, sort of do <laughs> do do mock-ups of them on stage. Okay. But they'd have to be movies that were in the public consciousness, you know, Wizard of Oz, something Everyone that everybody knows, yeah. right? Psycho fit into that canon perfectly, because... Um, like you say, even people who haven't seen Psycho are aware of the shower scene and are aware of the whole Norman Bates mother issues mm-hmm. psycho killer thing. But what we would do, all of us actors, we'd get together and we would screen the movie that we were going to make fun of. And I found that Psycho was a very make fun of a movie. I think part of it is when it's made. It's made in the six, like obviously the end of the 50s, it was released in the 60s. But there is a very sort of specificness, sort of style, to both the storytelling and the acting. Yeah, I know it, exactly what you mean. It, it feels like you're watching a 60s movie and, and they're, they're acting as in a 60s movie. And, and, and it even goes back to like when they would always, always hire actors from the stage uh, because that's how people learn their craft. You don't just become a movie star, right? Um, so it seemed like the actors are performing for the back of the room. They're all talking louder than yeah. they should be. It's got this weird newsreel quality to it. Uh, and the uh, beats of the story that are very, you know, 
making sure painstakingly grafted for you. This is where the $40,000 comes from. This is why she has to take it to the bank, right? Um, it, it seems almost like you're being spoon-fed yeah. when you're watching. And she's writing down $40,000 minus $700 exactly. car equals. <laughs> and I think that's A, because it was a different time, and B, because this is new territory. This whole slasher genre is new territory, so he was making it up as it goes along. So a lot of things do seem overplayed, and I'm going to be frank, the fact that the movie is just a hair over two hours long is felt. I could, I, I felt that. As a modern-day viewer, I, I can appreciate that it's Hitchcock, I can appreciate there's some really amazing sequences to it, but this movie did feel long in a way that some of the other movies in this list didn't to me. It probably is the longest of the bunch, too, isn't it? I think so. But, yeah. Uh, that final scene where everything's explained to us as well is yes. it kind of fits in that, too, right? With yes, the, the movie didn't trust us to put that together ourselves. Yes. So a psychiatrist says, this is who Norman Bates is, this is why he did what he did. It's an eight-minute explanation. Uh, yeah. I misspoke. This is an hour and 48 minutes long, but uh, it, 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 it feels longer. It's definitely a movie of its time, and I would want anyone who's watching it to be prepared for that. I think that if you're listening to this podcast and if you're this into slasher movies, you're willing to take that on the chin. And this is this is not me saying that, that Psycho is a bad movie. This is just me trying to prepare people that, you know, it, modern audiences are not going to react to the shower scene in the same way that the original audiences do. I don't. I just don't think they will. <laughs> not not in the same way, but just because of what we do see now. But I still find the shower scene the shower scenes tongue twister shocking. Yeah. In all honesty, when I watched it, just. Uh, this last time, it's it's just effective the way it's it's done, and mm -hmm. I don't know if it's the music or just just how iconic it is. I'd say it's probably the most famous movie murder of all time. I would not I mean, argue I with that. I can't think of one that's more famous than that. Just whether you've seen the movie or not, everyone knows the shower scene. And yeah, I love the shower scene, and, and like it is a film school, you know, in a lot of ways, and how to build suspense. Uh, and show as many angles as you can get away with, given the time. Right, At the time, that was pretty crazy to see as much as we did. Uh, which really was nothing. Which was nothing yeah, in the end of it. Some chocolate syrup and uh, <laughs> side boob. And yeah. Um, but um, I think that where I get really interested in it is the moments following that. Like I say, that's the dividing line of the movie. Once we lose her and we start focusing on on Norman Bates. Because... Again, you like you said when we started, you have to pretend you haven't seen this movie. So mm -hmm. to the audience at the time, Norman Bates comes in, discovers this body, and goes about the business of covering up the crime to protect his mother. Yeah. Right? And I was 100% with him psychologically. Like, if there was, if we didn't know the dirty secret about his mother being a corpse rotting away in the, in, in the, in the main house. Dude, what if someone hasn't seen Spoilers! <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> Come on, it's only been over 50 But if we didn't know that, all of his actions make complete sense. Yeah. And I really liked that. Well, he's so perfectly played, too. I, mm. I mean... Anthony Perkins nailed it. It's, it's 28 minutes... And you meet him for the first time, and I gotta say, like, I loved him. You meet him, and he's he's nervous, and he's dorky, kind of, and uh, you know, he's kind of sweet, kind, friendly, and and you just kind of buy into, you yeah. know, he's offering to make her sandwiches and milk, and it's yeah. I think it's also a modern performance in a maybe not so modern movie. His style of acting is different than everyone else. He doesn't have that, you know, Texan guy sort of overplaying it, or that car salesman sort of guy who's just. 
Throwing the lines out with as much gusto as possible. I've got gusto. gumption, see? Yeah. I'm watchable. <laughs> you know? Um, he doesn't play it like that at all. And he doesn't project like that. He's nervous and mumbling. He's got like a little kid's energy, but he's clearly... A, yeah, he's, a he's the one guy that I think that's believable yeah. in the movie. And, and still today. Still today. Like, um, you, you forgive the archness of the other performances because that's how it was done. Yeah. You know? Um, but... Anthony Perkins was doing something different, and that's frankly, I think, part of what makes the performance so memorable. And even after he has that argument with his mother, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, comes down with the sandwiches and milk, and he drops that hint, that first hint when he says the boy's best friend is his mother, mm-hmm. and it, it's a little bit awkward at that point, but you still think, well, he's still just so damn, you know, kind and polite, and but still just that nervous, and you think, well, maybe something's weird, either, maybe something's wrong with mother, or. Yeah. Or is there something wrong with him or their relation? There, something's wrong, but uh, you still... By, and then you're saying when he's cleaning up the mess. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's he, terrified. He looks shocked, and you get the impression also this isn't the first time he's had to cover up from one of Mother's messes. So, yeah. Uh, and then you have no idea, okay, where is this movie going now? This reminded me of the time when I seen... From Dusk Till Dawn. Right. And, and these movies are nowhere... I'm not comparing, <laughs> not comparing them at all. I understood. No, but it's almost... We're watching the Marianne Crane story, yeah. and then all of a sudden she left that movie. She drove away from that movie and drove into a different movie at the Bates Motel, yeah. where there's already a movie going on, and, and that movie and she, has... she should not have driven to this movie. Yeah. So, and then these two movies connected, and uh, he killed her, and then, then we have to watch the rest her. of this movie. Yeah, that movie ended I went to see From Dust Till Dawn in the theater, not seeing a trailer. I watched half of it. I'm thinking we're watching this heist movie or a, you know, a criminal brother's Getaway. Sort of a grimy road movie. I had no idea that uh, 45 <laughs> minutes in, I'm watching a, a vampire survival flick. And, and uh, that's, it's a fun way to watch a movie. <laughs> it's definitely, yeah, they <laughs> kind of moved your chair on you. I think one of the great things that I like about you is the psychological depth of, uh, 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 that we're given to, to Norman Bates' character. There's a scene in this movie, I think you talked about it briefly, where he fixes her a sandwich and they have a conversation yeah. in the little back office. And he talks about stuffing birds and his relationship with his mother and how lonely it is there. And we learn so much about him, but it doesn't feel like we're being spoon-fed exposition. We are, but right. uh, it, it seems really natural the way it comes out. And one of the things I really treasured about that scene is it's a scene that you would never see you know, today. That's like almost ten minutes of two people in a room just talking to each Almost other. Almost Tarantino-esque. Yeah, that's, Tarantino's the only person in Hollywood yeah. who can get away with it, because nobody tells Tarantino no, and right? They, because as far as we know, they're not talking about the movie at all. <laughs> yeah. it, whether or not she's even listening to what he's saying, because she's almost thinking that somehow he's talking about her problems. And yeah, she's, she's preoccupied. Gonna, you know what? You're right. I should return this money. And <laughs> Yeah. Are you listening? And, and that's interesting psychologically, too, because Marion sort of does have the epiphany that she needs to go back and return the money. And it's after she makes that decision that the decision is taken away from her, you know? And that's sort of an interesting layer to it as well. The fact that the $40,000 goes into the swamp, you know? Like, that all of that time that they spent setting up where that money came yeah, and from and all of And that just was... It meant nothing to, to Norman Bates, you know? That's, the money wasn't a motivating factor to him. And the, Yeah, the sister and the boyfriend came after and they're looking for what they were accusing. He killed her because he wanted the money. Exactly. And all of a sudden, they don't realize, no, no, that part of the movie's over. We're in a different yeah, movie. Yeah, the $40,000 is in a swamp. Uh, I think what we're saying is that there's a lot to like about, <laughs> uh, about Psycho and it's definitely earned its place in, in cinema history. I think that there's a lot of people that would just assume that Psycho is on the list. Alfred Hitchcock directed it. It's number one on the list. 
And I'm going to drop some spoilers for you, Scott. Dun, dun. Psycho is not going to be number one on the list for me. I, I, I have a lot of respect for it. It's on my wall. And I think that of the Psycho series, even though, you know, it's, it is Arch and it is of its time, it is the strongest entry of the series. And two people die, by the way. Yeah. Two deaths. So uh, it, it leaves an impression, and it opens the door for what was to come. The brother's talking to, to Norman, trying to get some answers from him, and just, just he's, uh, you know, he's tripping over his answers, he's getting caught in his lies, and he's getting confused and nervous. It's just, it, I just love, it's just brilliantly played, and I, just, I think the performance by Anthony Perkins makes, makes the movie. It's, yeah, it really does. Um, and it's just to see, I mean, you've got the remake right there. If you want to know how great a job he does, just watch the remake and see Vince Vaughn in it. Yeah. And, uh, Actually, realize. let's spend a couple minutes on the remake, because uh, I don't know if I'll get around to it on Mike in Review. <laughs> um, I, I'm of the belief that you should remake bad movies, frankly, as a rule. Movies that didn't go well but had a good premise, you know. That movie should have been good but wasn't. So let's try again, because that story has some good elements. I don't necessarily get the need to remake classics. In a way, I understand I complained about how it was very obviously in the, the 60s sort of yeah. mindset. Uh, bringing it to a younger audience, I can see the impulse there, but you're going to piss off as many people as you're going to please. I think Probably that's, more so, right? I think that's the only reason to remake this one was... Kids aren't going to go see a, a black and white movie made in 1960. Yeah, so. black and white. But it's, it's a great story, and they, they wanted someone to see it. But, but uh, and this is not even like when they remake Friday the 13th or Nightmare on Elm Street, where they like they add modernize the special effects and put more recognizable. Yeah, re envision it, do and, it different. Yeah, but a new spin. This Psycho remake that Gus Van Sant decided to do was practically shot for shot. Yeah. I just don't understand that as a conceit. He spent his goodwill hunting Hollywood credibility to get this movie made. He was an indie movie director, you know. He was an art house guy until Goodwill Hunting came out, and all of a sudden he was, you know, mainstream. And with that <laughs> that tether, he decided Psycho was the movie he needed to make, <laughs> and uh, it was folly. I mean, I, this is a movie that is not remembered fondly at all. I, you I had know? a problem with those little uh, flash random. Portraits that were shown in the death scenes. It's yeah. like a goat on the road or a woman in lingerie or something. And Clouds in the sky all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and if nothing else was changed, the stuff that you do change stands out so much louder. Anyway. Just, and, you know, seeing Vince Vaughn masturbating was... Uh, I mean, you get Anthony Perkins, he's looking through the hole in the wall, but yeah. you don't... But you, I have to believe. I, I'll admit that I yeah. have not read the novel, but I have to believe in the novel. He was jerking off behind the wall. Why do you spy on a girl in the shower if you, you know? I don't know. I'm putting it in the bank. <laughs> exactly. Bank it for later. <laughs> I guess we just handle things differently. <laughs> Typically, when I spy on people in the shower, I'm masturbating. But that's me. You know? All right, I'm gonna make sure I don't shower here. Damn it! But uh, I mean, yeah. As soon as you see Vince Vaughn in that movie, like. He seems he's he's unsettling and uh, he doesn't give the same. Like I said, you see uh, Norman Bates and I. I thought I love the guy. Yeah. If you don't know that he's going to kill two people, in the next you almost feel kind of sorry for him. You got to be lonely. And I kind of cheered for him. I almost ho hoped he didn't get found out or. Mm -hmm. It's before. the whole business with the stuffed birds, and like they touch it on both movies. But I, I think I like it as sort of a psychological kind of comparison. He says that his mother is is as harmless as one of these stuffed birds. 
Yeah. And uh, the stuffed birds are creepy because they're supposed to be, you know, real animals. And that he spent his time hollowing them out and throwing their guts away and filling them with fluid to get them to pose just perfectly for him. And that's how he thinks of his mother, because she's another one of his stuffed birds, right? <laughs> uh, I don't know. The, it, it's, it's, it's a strong story, and it's told by a strong director, at least when Hitchcock did it. Um, like I said, the remake is folly. I can't discourage you enough <laughs> from watching the remake. But, uh, Psycho is worth your time, still today. Yeah, I'm sure it's referred to as a, a masterpiece for a reason, but mm. I don't think many of these other five get really called that by people other than horror fans very yeah. often. But uh, I'll throw but, down my masterpiece here and there. But uh, I, the Base Motel, it's or the Base Motel and the Psycho House, it's uh, it's still up there in Universal Studios for for a reason. We just went there last spring, and it's still there and you got an actor come yeah. out of the hotel after the tram and chases you with a knife. He dumps a body in the trunk. It's, you know, it's a hoot for the kids. And <laughs> Just as one more note, and I do think we should probably move on soon, but as one more note as about the folly of the remake of Psycho, yeah. a movie that went so specifically like shot for shot in, in some of its approach to remaking, they shot on the same location, on the same Hollywood backlot where that house is, but they didn't use that house. They built a mock front and put it in front of the classic really? Psycho house. <laughs> why? Why do that? That's why? <laughs> Everything else specific to a point, but the house, like the signature image house, no, we don't want that. Go figure. So we're going to jump ahead 14 years. And, of course, there was plenty of slasher cinema to be found uh, in the in-between in drive-in movie theaters and sort of the exploitation cinema of the 60s. But I don't think anyone captured the imagination to anywhere close to the degree that Psycho did until the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And With a very provocative title, what I think a great you had title. you had you had movie tickets sold just by the title. You know exactly <laughs> what you're getting into with that. There's no when a stranger calls or oh, I wonder what this movie's about. Right, no, you're not going to go see this movie. It's a specific movie for Sex specific... Chainsaw Massacre. That's the one about the family reunion, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it, it <laughs> is yeah. the talking dog movie, right? <laughs> no, um, Toby Hooper. I find to be a frustrating force in the horror movie industry, to be honest. I mean, I think he got really lucky here. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think he's an untalented director as a rule, mm. but he, this was a movie made by a group of friends with no with no money. And I have a lot of respect for that. In fact, like that's something that I am attempting to do myself. Oh, so really? I'm not going to wag my finger at him or anything like that. But um, I think that this movie, part of the magic of it, Maybe that it's more about luck than skill. <laughs> it, it could be. I mean, you think if that movie was that exact movie came out today, would it be even considered as a, or just be a throwaway movie? Or yeah. maybe it's because of when it was made, or or a combination. 
I'll just do brief lip service to the plot. I mean, I think most people are somewhat familiar <laughs> with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Before you do the plot, you got to say it has a nice introduction by Dan Fielding. Yeah, that's right. John Larroquette narrates the opening <laughs> to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And they got him back for the <laughs> remake. They, right, they used him again. I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah, you got to give him work. <laughs> yeah. That was a long time ago. And to anybody out there who recognized that Dan Fielding reference... You're old and have many responsibilities now, don't you? <laughs> and you can come pick up your prize. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, Toby Hooper uh, has, is still making movies today uh, based on sort of establishing himself with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, arguably his high watermark subsequent to this would be like the 1980 movie Alligator and the 1986 or 85 movie Poltergeist, which has been loudly rumored to have been more or less directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Some people who were actors in that film will say there was large, large portions of filming where Toby Hooper was not on set. The thing is, is subsequent to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when I look at the work that came out from Toby Hooper, I don't see anything near this. I don't. And he's had much more budget, he's had much more talented people to work with, and he's had decades. And this movie is more about the experience of it. It's, like, so grimy mm-hmm. and so, like, sunburnt, and you can almost smell the movie. Like You can smell the sweat off. Yeah. Uh, it, you, it's an experience. It, uh, people say that it feels like a documentary. It's clearly not a documentary, but it feels so grimy well, and weren't real. Weren't people walking out of the theater... Supposedly, in its first run, people thought it was a snuff film. Or, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if that's true or if that's just legend at this point. But, yeah. but it, yeah, it feels like it. It's something about the way it was presented made it feel authentic, and it still has moments that feel so unbelievably genuine. Another fascinating thing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, despite the title and despite the reputation, how much blood is in this movie? Not, not a lot. And almost, how many people? Almost none. How many people get killed by a chainsaw? None. One. Does. <laughs> one. One. No, the, the wheelchair kid. Right. Yeah, yeah I was going to say oh, that. That I would call fucking shenanigans. On. <laughs> it's not really a very much of a chainsaw massacre, is it? It's well, a, presumably he cut up all the bodies. It's a chainsaw inconvenience. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> um, did you? Oh, man, it's it's so happy when that guy gets it. Oh the chainsaw. God. Franklin, <laughs> Franklin but, was the most irritating character, and uh, we will see echoes <laughs> of Franklin in subsequent slasher movies. The character who, on one hand, we should feel pity for, but on the other hand, is so fucking obnoxious that we actually have a, a oh feeling of God. elation when they are killed off. I mean, I felt sad. You know, he's a wheelchair guy, but I, I hadn't watched this movie for quite some time, and I had forgotten how annoying Franklin was. Yeah. Like, just to the point where I was... It almost... For a moment, I was thinking, this is going to ruin the movie for me. This doesn't have the shine I thought it did. And I... At um, times, it doesn't seem genuine. I thought, he, he's whiny, he's complaining, he just won't shut up. And that scene when he has a temper tantrum mm-hmm. at the bottom of that abandoned house, and he starts blowing raspberries. Yeah. And he's spitting, and he's like... <laughs> Holy fuck. Like, nobody wants me around. Everybody's feeling sorry <laughs> for me because I'm in a wheelchair. My life is terrible. Why do you guys bother? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know? I was thinking, this this is ruining the movie for me. I, <laughs> I can't watch this guy. It was horrible. And actually, I, then after, I'm not sure if this is true. I read that he was actually in the movie when they were filming. He was really getting on the nerves of the other actors. You heard that as well? Yeah, but, yeah. In the documentary, so some they of talk that, about it. Yeah, some of that was genuine with yeah. his sister getting pissed off at him at the end and... 
he's whining about the flashlight. There's lots of stuff that, about this movie that is interesting, like the fact that the distribution rights were bought by a mafia. The, 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 the company was a front for, um, for the mafia. As a result, nobody got paid, really, for this movie. Um, but they got a career out of it, because having the Texas Chainsaw Massacre on your resume gave you work. Because uh, it was it was a cultural phenomenon, yeah. but they got completely screwed in the distribution, made almost no money. Similar sale, although a similar story for Night of the Living Dead, although the mafia wasn't involved. But uh, even though it's one of the more influential horror movies of all time, its creators made almost nothing, hmm. almost nothing. Unfortunate, but true. Uh, the movie takes its inspiration from uh, the Ed Gain, which is also the Psycho. seed yeah. uh, for Psycho as well. Um, but this one is a little bit more literal in that it seems like it's set almost in the backdrop of an Ed Gein-like experience. Yeah, that room where she walks falls but through the bones, and there's the furniture made out of human bones and skin on lamps. Yeah, that's, that's all Ed Gein there. And the reason they're out on this road trip is that they found out that this cemetery was being... What, I don't know what the word is. There's corpses were being they were dig- stolen. Yeah, they're digging up corpses. Desecration. Grave desecration was happening, and they wanted to go and make sure that their family plots had been... Yeah, spared um, and so that was also the impetus for the movie but um, it's interesting that both these movies share the same inspiration and yet they're very very different yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah they both took liberties with the head gain story <laughs> but yeah the kids sorry I started talking about the plot about 10 minutes ago but um, it's classic you know they encounter uh, a crazy hitchhiker and get spooked by it and they just end up getting stuck in rural texas and it's just like the worst day ever they cannot get out of this place and they choose the wrong door to knock on for help yeah that hitchhiker yeah when he when he cuts his hand he grabs that switchblade from the from franklin he cuts his hand that's just so strange. It's, it's like you always talk about your, your what the fuck moments. I mean, yeah. that was one for me when, you know, he just grabs you, cuts his hand, he's giggling. And just that whole scene, it's just weird. And whatever music they're playing in the background on the van, this is music that these kids would totally not listen to. I don't know. It's some sort of hillbilly weird music. And the driver is just driving along, no yeah. reaction. But Well, they went for a very industrial score. It's not very musical score no, it's, uh, in that respect. Uh, and and, and but, it's just madness. and. <laughs> But I think that performance, that that hitchhiker, in a way, everybody talks about Gunnar Hansen in the movie, and I think Gunnar Hansen is really good. But that hitchhiker, I think, gave a terrifying <laughs> performance. Yeah. Uh, and um, it really sort of sets the template. And I kind of feel like that smear of blood mark that he puts on their cars driving away was sort of him marking them in yeah. some way, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, I like that element about it. Watching the documentary on the film, talking about Gunnar Hansen, who was playing the famous character of Leatherface, the whole family is a bunch of cannibals and crazed lunatics, but Leatherface seems to be their, their butcher, the guy who does the bulk of the dirty work. They're all batshit crazy, but Leatherface is on a whole different level. Uh, I don't know what kind of psychological destruction has happened to him if he's like what his issues are, but he lives in this isolated world, and these lunatics are all he knows. And a telling thing happened, I, I'd never really thought about it in this way, but Gunnar Hansen was being interviewed for the documentary on my DVD, and he said, in the movie, the way he looked at it, despite all of the insanity that was going on, and despite all the violence that Leatherface, Leatherface inflicts on people, he is the most frightened character in the movie. 
Yeah. Leatherface. Yeah, he's is, yelled at by his family, or he's horrified. He he has this world which he understands, and he butchers meat for for the family, and and he has his little sort of room and space that he understands. And these fucking teenagers keep showing up, and he doesn't know what to do but bash them and yeah. put them on the hooks and do what he does with everything else. Like, I was like, Leather, like Leatherface is just doing what Leatherface does. It's almost not personal, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I thought that was an interesting take, you know? He's got to keep the freezer full. We've seen so many, you know, cur- killers that are portrayed as people who are just so in love with the act of killing. And... uh in a way, le- like Leatherface's role in the family was to butcher things, supply meat for the chili, and uh, while he was doing that, he he had a, a value, a role to play. All the rest of them are really enjoying these people being tortured and killed. They seem to really celebrate it and have a good time. Yeah, Leatherface just screams and screams and screams. He he tears apart the door with the chainsaw when he's chasing Sally into the house, and then she jumps out the window. And it's a big chase. And yeah. When the cook and his brother, I guess they call him the cook. I used to think it was his father, but I guess it's, they just call him the cook. Yeah. They, I love that scene when he comes back and he says, uh, I wrote down the quote, where was, look what your brother did to the door. Doesn't he have any pride in his home? I, just, I love that <laughs> line. This is the house with corpses and bones strewn all over the place, and he's got a he, little... And by the way, real bones and real dead animals. Yeah. And like apparently the infamous dinner table sequence, which was like a, a almost two day shoot, the meat on the table was starting to rot and oh, cook God. under the lights. And, and people were barfing. It's like, such a grimy scene. You feel like you're saying you could smell it. You just feel like you smell it. And it's just madness and they're screaming. And it's so shrill. This movie is 84 minutes long and it feels sometimes like it's three hours long because it's just like piercing that and that lead actress she does a really good job of like making me believe she's been driven to the edge of madness but i can't imagine how many hours of footage they must have of her just screaming what's what's her name um marilyn burns yeah that's i think she recently passed away actually about the last 20 minutes of the movie she's in a constant state of panic and screaming and uh and she just looks manic and terrified and, and she sells it it's 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 good and you talk about Gunnar Hansen the dinner scene you know when uh, they give the hammer to grandpa and he's saying oh hit her grandpa hit her kill her and everyone's getting excited and jumping up and down I heard he almost felt like he was losing touch with sanity at that moment he almost thought it, it started getting real really and uh like he had to you know take a break after and this I, who knows how much of this what you hear about these movies is legend at this point and yeah how much occurred but I mean you you can get that it's just that whole scene is just crazy. She's crying and screaming. The family's laughing and howling at her, and it's it's just madness. That's the most mad <laughs> scene I think of. It's interesting because to me, even though we've already mentioned that this is not a particularly violent movie, it's very disturbing. And um, five five people die. They don't show a lot of blood, but five people are killed. It's true. Yeah. It's more disturbing than violent to me it's more the experience of the movie and the experience of the movie is so shrill and so disturbing and so ugly that it actually does like you say for me kind of take away from the enjoyment level it's a true blue horror movie it does horrify and that's what a horror movie should do yeah. and that's what a horror movie should do but there's nothing fun about the texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> no. some people will argue that there is but i don't see it and as a result it's not 
one of the ones that I would revisit again and again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I I find the Friday the 13th movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, even for their silliest corners, to be kind of fun. Yeah, they're fun. They're more roller coaster. Yeah, this, this isn't is... fun. <laughs> um, and that's a res- I respect that choice. That is a way to go, and that's definitely a choice that was made by the movie. Toby Hooper, you know, interviewed, would say that he made a black comedy. And I don't know that I no. agree with that. I no, really I don't. I the line where asking, doesn't your brother have any pride in his home? That's, yeah. I, I, honestly, I do laugh at that line every time. I really question uh, Toby Hooper. I have respect for anybody who's made as many movies as he has. Sure. But some of them are pretty damn terrible. Life Force is probably up there for me as one of the worst movies of the 80s. And that's saying something. Um, he did this Stephen King adaptation called The Mangler, which is just a Never debacle. Seen that. It's no. just a debacle. He's had movies that were watchable, and he's done like okay work in the interim. But this Texas Chainsaw Massacre gave Toby Hooper legitimacy in a career that I kind of wonder if he really genuinely deserves. And that's well, pretty controversial words, I know, for someone who loves the horror genre. But I would invite anybody to look up Toby Hooper's filmography, and tell me what the high watermark is, you know. And I think we're talking about it right now. Yeah, I agree. But I I think, for me, we're going to have a problem, because (laughs) (laughs) nostalgia is a big thing, and I think it's a powerful thing, and I'm sure that affects how I look at this film, because I've seen this movie at a a way, way too young age. I I was in (laughs) elementary school, I've seen it at friends' house, I don't know how we got access to this, but... And it, it affected me. This movie legitimately scared me. I was scared of this movie. Yeah. Um, a lot of these movies, I don't know if they gave me that feeling of actual fear. When when Leatherface opens that metal door, that sliding door at the end of the hall, and he comes out squealing and he grabs that girl and pulls her back in, oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. <laughs> it's awful. That, that moment has been in so many of my dreams as a kid. Oh, yeah. Going down the hallway in my old house where I grew up, that the door at the end of the hall, that was his leather, that was his metal door. Yeah. And I just kept dreaming of walking down my hall and that door would swing open and he comes up <laughs> and then grabs me and yeah. puts me on a hook and I, I think I've had that dream like, man, through my whole childhood. Hey. So, and so, yeah, it's a horror movie and it horrified me. It, it stuck with me. It, it deserves its place. I, I put it in the list. Like, it oh, definitely sure. deserves to be in here and it's definitely an undeniably influential film. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm, I wish Toby Hooper hadn't made all of these other movies, but, um, you know, he's not George Romero even. And Romero has a very spotty career, but he went on to make strong movies great things, yeah. after, after Night of the Living Dead, you know. And, uh, you know, if Toby Hooper had disappeared off the face of the earth, he would still be remembered for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And if Toby Hooper makes 20 more films before he dies, still be, I yeah. think he's still going to be remembered for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, one of my favorite things in the film is uh, the first thing we hear, too, that uh, that sound of the flashbulbs. Yeah. And it's, especially when you watch that in a darkened room, and it's just black, and you hear little things, you get that flash, and it's so bright. Yeah. And then you see a little bit of, uh, you know, close-up of a corpse, and then it goes dark again, you hear shuffling, and then that, I, I love that sound. And it's become so famous that every remake, they do every sequel, they always have that sound in the yeah. trailer, and you automatically know, oh, it's a Chainsaw movie, it's a Chainsaw movie. <laughs> 
I like the movie, uh, I, and uh, you do see the echoes from the previous film. Like I say, the killer being uh, somewhat uh, less psychologically explored, but I think you can fill in the blanks here. We've got three generations of men living in this house together. It kind of makes you wonder what happened to the ladies. <laughs> Nothing good, I'm guessing. <laughs> I, for me, it's a it's an experiential movie. And I, I agree with you that it is scary. It is horrifying. I didn't watch it. This isn't one of the ones that I saw when I was young. This is one that I caught up to later in life. And um, it, it works. It, and it's 84 minutes of your life. And I think that you should watch it. But I think that it's, depending on the person, you know, either going to be one of your high water marks for a movie's experiences, or it's going to be one of those things where you regret the time that you spent. <laughs> it's not for everyone. If it you really like, isn't. if you like polished Hollywood movies, then you can't. You'll make it through ten minutes of this and say, "I can't, I can't get into this." But, but if you want, you know, if you're, if you're like me and you were just a young kid watching something that really felt like it was something you were not supposed to see, mm-hmm. it felt like it was illegal for us to see this movie when we were young. And that's what I'm saying. The amateur nature of it and the lack of polish to it made it feel real somehow. And that's why I say there's a little bit of luck or magic or whatever you want to call to this movie. I still think, you know, it's proudly on my shelf. And uh, if someone has, has tells me they haven't seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, I'll kind of look at them funny and say, well, okay, I guess. Well, here's a little tip for your little movie-making, Larry. Uh, in one of the documentaries on here, you know the scene when they cut cut her finger and Grandpa's sucking the blood out? I heard They cut her finger. They actually cut her finger, yeah. They couldn't get the pump to work. Well, let's just really cut her finger. So if you can't figure out how to do special effects, just just cut her finger. Like. And that's the kind of like, shit mean, that would not be tolerated. No, they cut her finger, and he's, so he's sucking blood out of her. This is really happening. This is not even a movie now. This is... This is a documentary. I have often wondered about the hitchhiker and the hand cut in the car. I'm pretty sure the... the, the that looks pretty real, too. The, the, when I he mean, cuts his own hand, it looks real. The cut on the kid in the wheelchair, less so. But the cut in his own hand looks legit to me. And it's funny because you mentioned the lack of... Uh, the lack of vi- or the lack of gore that we see, and it's funny because we have people impaled on meat hooks, we have people bashed with hammers, and, and you know a guy in a wheelchair, a wheelchair guy getting sliced really fucking terribly with a chainsaw. But uh, that moment when Leatherface at the end he falls down and he slices his own leg, you see, you actually see a little bit of meat. Yeah, it's funny because you 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 haven't seen anything like that, and I wince when I see him like ooh, because <laughs> it's the first real. Yeah, gore that you see in. But uh, you know, I'm not one of these guys that can cheer. uh, I'm not cheering for the killer in this one. No, there are times. There are times in the Friday the Thirteenth movies where I feel myself saying, "Yeah, Jason, you show him, right? You get that idiot. That she deserves to die for hiding on the boat." I I want these people in this movie to get away and get away fast. Exactly, and and I think that that except Franklin. That's good. (laughs) Yeah, no wheelchair access. He's gonna have to stay behind. What? All right, this is a film called When a Stranger Calls. It is directed by Fred Walton. I'm not aware of a lot of his other work beyond this. Um, he did it. He did the sequel, didn't he? I believe so. Um, I haven't seen it, so it doesn't matter. What is <laughs> what I think is significant of this about this movie, and like I said, it's the most obscure title I think of the six that I chose. It's not, it's the least obvious. It's one. the only one of the six that I had not previously seen. Actually, I went out and purchased a used copy just for 
just for you. Well, I hope you didn't feel your money was ill spent. <laughs> um, uh, much like Psycho, I would prepare people that this is a very 70s movie. It is walk a chick of 70s. The sideburns are loud and proud, you know. Um, some of the fashions of the time I find kind of hysterical. The white man afro that uh, Carol Kane's uh, husband is rocking. Yeah. But this is one of the cases where the datedness of it is actually distracting. Yeah. I think it actually yeah. takes a little bit away from the scares for me that that the guy's rocking a white boy afro and, yeah. the, and that I'm supposed to take him seriously as a business person, you know? Um, and that's my own baggage. I don't know. I, I let that be. I just say, I look at the data was made and I say, okay, this takes place yeah. in this year. I try to let that be as much as possible. Sometimes it bothers me, sometimes it doesn't. It's just something that I would tell people to be prepared for when they came into it. Originally, this was a short film, and it was a short film called The Sitter. And uh, I'm not sure if Carol Kane starred in it. I believe that she did. But it basically encompassed the first 20 minutes of the movie. Or otherwise known as the good 20 minutes. Correct. Okay. Um, this is a question, and I've been searching on the Internet a little bit, uh, superficially, to try and answer it, the chicken and the egg syndrome. If the whole, the phone calls coming from the house babysitter thing is something that originated uh, from this concept in this movie, or if it had predated this substantially... If it's uh, urban legend or... Well, it, like, exactly. The thing is, is that this is right around the time in the late 70s, early 80s, where, where things like call tracing and call waiting and stuff like that are, are actually, you know, a new technology. Yeah. In fact, one of the complaints about the movie is that at the time when they do the trace in the movie, at that time, there's no way they would have been able to trace the call as quickly as right. they do. But whatever. I, I don't. Can you even make a call like that from the house? It has to be a separate same. line, right? It would have to be yeah. two lines in a house, which is very rare nowadays. And in 1980, what are the odds that there's a separate line in the kid's bedroom? That they didn't know about or forgot to. <laughs> Again, it's a, just a plot point. Yeah. And if it was just the short film about the babysitter being stalked, we wouldn't we wouldn't chew on that. Film. And I'm, honestly, when I'm watching the movie, I, I'm not focused on that because as soon as you get the shock, the call's coming from inside the house. You're yeah. not thinking, oh, wait a second, well, the, how would they do that if they didn't have circuit? You're not. You're just saying, oh shit, it's in the house. Get out of here. And, but, because uh, the time that we grew up, I'm sure we heard that story. It's basically like the the hook hanging out of the, the back of the car type of story. You know, it's it's a it, every kid in the world's heard that around a campfire at some point in their life. But I'm not sure if it has its origins from somewhere before this or not. Um, we saw we see this in other slasher movies, like I say, Black Christmas. The calls are coming from the house, and um, you know it. There's but, probably no scream yeah. made if, if When a Stranger Calls was no. Absolutely. Um, but that is really the big famous sort of thing about this movie, is the babysitter alone in the house is getting a series of threatening phone calls telling her to check the children. And uh, the fact that the killer is that evil and that he has killed the children in the house and is now just spending his leftover time tormenting the woman downstairs um, is fucked up and crazy. But... When they decided to stretch that short film into a feature-length movie, they kind of hurt themselves a little bit. Yeah, I agree. To me, we got a really strong opening, and we got a fairly decent ending, and we got a big, long middle. <laughs> and the big, long middle is It was a different wonky. movie. It's like, uh, yeah, it was two movies that met again, and these two, I don't think these two movies should have met. <laughs> Um, it's one I like. I said I didn't see this movie before. I felt like I've seen it because mm -hmm. I've heard. You know, everyone knows the check the children line and uh, you know calls coming in the house, and that's the big twist. And uh, much like Psycho, you just have to pretend you don't know the shower scenes coming. You know, <laughs> right? And I think after that twenty minutes, um, I realized 
that there's more movie. And I, I didn't know where this was going to go because I thought, oh, that's the end of the movie, isn't it? Right. But uh, I had no idea how much uh, boredom I was in for for the <laughs> next 50 minutes. But. Well, here's the thing. I mean, you're right. It's it, The pacing sucks in the middle. It really does. But there are interesting elements, and I don't want to spend too much time talking about the remakes to movies. But they remade this movie. I and see. I did see the remake. Yeah. Uh, and basically, they tried to make that opening twenty minutes the whole movie. Yeah. I think that I would have actually maybe taken another whack at that center part of the movie, but sped it up and keep the killer in the dark. I've said this before about killers. I prefer them to do their work in the shadows. I kind of think that the less you see of them, the, the more mystery there they, that we have, the more you can fill in the holes yourself and make that guy scary. In this movie, once we get to see this killer and get to know him and are asked to feel sorry for him, which I don't because I no. know he's killed two kids with his bare hands he's and he's pick. clearly a monster. They show a flashback to him playing with the blood and... Yeah, he's up to his elbows, and he's like he's clearly he's awful. Um, so why try to make him sympathetic? Um, and this whole idea of this Charles Durning, who's an actor I like, um, and a normal-looking guy. He's like this. He kind of reminds me of like my, my dad. If my dad could star in a movie, right? You just don't see too many movies where the main character is like this. 50-year-old fat guy <laughs> on a quest to, to, you know, right or wrong. Yeah, he was the investigator? Yeah, and uh, he, not only is he the investigator, but he, in coalition with other members of the police department, he's a private detective at this point, but he uses his police ties to help find this guy. He's not out to arrest him. No. In fact, he makes it very clear that he intends to kill this guy. With an ineffective weapon of choice. For some, <laughs> Indeed. Some but I think that, that conceit alone... Like, could have and should have made an interesting middle chapter to the movie, right? The cop is willing to cross the line and become a force of evil to punish this evil. <laughs> like, something about that case stuck in his cross so much. He's also been hired by the, the father of the killed children to locate the guy, so he's, right. he, he's personally invested. But the problem is we also have this tangential faux romance between Ka uh, Colleen Dewhurst, who I think is a really good actress, and she's got a great character like face, and like I like her a lot. She's, I think she's Canadian. Who is she? She is the, the woman. She was in the, the bar? woman in the bar. Okay. Um, and and there were moments that were like I could see I could see the movie that could have been good happening is what I'm trying to say. Like you can see where this could work as a as a story, but you're waiting for them to get back to Carol Kane and get back to the suspense. Yeah, and to be fair, they do. With the woman in the bar, though, it just felt so disconnected, and, and I'm trying to tie it together, saying where where does she fit in, and and why, and and then we have scenes of the killer begging for money, and he's going to the homeless shelter, and, and I was just wondering why are we doing this, and yes. he's, he's naked, crying under the sink, and you're not going to make us no, feel I'm sorry not. for him. You are just not. I'm sorry if no. you if you establish him as a child killer who who pulls kids apart with his hands. At no point are we going to feel sorry for him, and it was foolish to attempt it. No. Um, I, I have no problem with sympathetic takes on killers, by the way. <laughs> like, if it can be done, right? It can be done. Sure. In a way, I feel bad for, like, in Psycho, it's, for, for Norman Bates. He was made into this psycho. He doesn't realize what he's doing. and Yeah, but not so in this case. And it, it, in fact, it just doesn't, it doesn't ring true. The crimes he commit don't seem to match this person that we've met. And how calculating and how sneaky he is. When he gets in, when he finally tracks down Carol Kane again, and uh, stalks her in her house. Like, 
he psychologically tortures her first by making her think that he's killed her kids. When he calls her at the restaurant? And, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, he manages to not only sneak in her house, but sneak into her bed without being noticed. That's really a creepy idea, you know? Sure. That should be fucking horrifying, right? Um, so what I see here is a lot of potential, but why I think that it should be included in these, and it's significant, and it's mainly for that opening 20-minute coda, is this is the building ball blocks for Scream. And this is the mm-hmm. template that, again, I think a lot of stuff we see in this movie we kind of roll our eyes at because we've seen so many times. Not as familiar in 1979. Right. right? So. And if, if you've ever babysat in your younger years, it is kind of, it's creepy. You're in someone else's house. The kids are sleeping. It's it's really quiet. Yeah. You're you can alone. identify with that really easily. Sure. And uh, there's another movie on the list we're going to look at again where they they go right back to the babysitters. And yeah. It's a, it's a theme, so. Yeah. Um, but this one was, I mean, I this was after a week of watching... Leatherface and Freddy Krueger and and this was the first time I I was honestly uh, bored. I was bored for a while. Yeah. yeah, I do have a problem with the middle chapter and there's lots of scenes where people dramatically close the door so they can have a serious conversation. And I'm not I'm not knocking it because of the low body count, which we got two children and uh, and the killer himself. Yeah, because. Uh, I mean, we don't see the kids; they die off screen, which I don't have a problem with. It's you, still horrifying. You don't, you don't want to see that. That's, it's still horrifying. Yeah. yeah, just seeing them carry those little body bags out of the house is just enough for me. As a parent, no, yeah, I don't want I, to I see, want to see Friday the Thirteenth. I want to see people's necks sliced. I don't. You don't want to see the kids being mangled. You, hearing about it is uh, is is good, but not good. But the lesson here is that seed story that 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 bit with the babysitter basically made the movie. The movie was big because of those first 20 minutes. So first of all, I guess that means don't try to take a film that it works perfectly as a short film and stretch it into feature length. I think that that's really what broke this film. I think that they had a great opening and that, that was basically a movie in of itself. Well, even the- and in trying to make that 20 minute movie into a 90 minute movie... I think even the great opening, they didn't really seal it off, though. She opens the door, and then what, the, the police are there. Police officer. But it's, there's, a time, there's a time jump or something, yeah. because it's... Because that's exactly where the, the uh, I think, the short film ends, right? Okay. She opens the door, and it freezes on that guy's face. And I, I guess if you're watching the short film, you're wondering, is that the killer, or is that the police? You don't know. It's kind of ambiguous. The idea of the short film, I'm sure, was just to scare the there piss is, out. There is a creepy moment, though, when, when she realizes the phone call is coming from the house. She looks, and she sees that shadow upstairs coming down towards her. Mm-hmm. That, that is a creepy moment. And you're but, with her psychologically. it's a creepy moment. You want to see it played out, and what's going to happen? Oh, get away from him. But then it just stops, mm-hmm. and we're looking at the after math and and we watch this new movie star for 50 minutes the uh, the police and then and then that suddenly stops and we're wondering well where is this going to go now and then we get the seven years later or you know back to the babysitter now grown with kids of her own who some for some reason after witnessing what she has she's letting her kids stay with the babysitter which i don't i don't think i didn't buy that as soon as i seen it I said, no i would never leave my kids with the babysitter after experiencing that firsthand but she was traumatized when she was young. Um, she let it go. She I was more it. psychologically with her in the first part of the movie, because like I say, you, I agree. Everybody can relate to being the responsible person in a house that doesn't belong to you, and you, you're not familiar there. And uh, at the beginning of the evening, it's kind of exciting. You're in charge. You're a kid, and you've got responsibility. But as the sun goes down and the shadows get longer and the house sort of, you know, reminds you that it's unfamiliar to you, you can get creepy. I mean, yeah, there were some good camera angles. You didn't know where the killer was, so you... 
kind of a shots of the clock or shot from outside. And Carol Kane, I think, was strong. I was psychologically with her. When she first calls the cops, she's a little bit embarrassed to call the cops because she's been scared by these phone calls, but she's scared enough to call the cops, so she's going to try it. And the cop talks her down, and you can sort of see her, okay, yeah, I am making too much of this, right? With that scene, did, uh, <laughs> I always thought when she calls the cops... To me, the cops sound like Cliff Flavin on the phone. Right? And I just totally got that. I started, you know, giggling inside. But, uh, you know, she's calling the police and he's saying, Ah, oh, it's probably just some kids there. Some some kind of weirdo. I think he's some kind of weirdo. Yeah. God, the city's full of them. It's, it's like that's going to make her feel better. Ah, it's probably just some kind of weirdo out there. All right. The doors are locked, right? about it. Yeah, of course, the first thing she would do is lock the doors. <laughs> like, you know, um, but she, when she called the cops, she said it wasn't an emergency, so she's just being sent to some random desk, right? Yeah. <laughs> but when the worm turns, and they they finally decide to trace the call, they call her back. Calls are coming from the house. She doesn't even respond on the phone. As soon as she hears that information, she's unable to speak. Mm-hmm. But she still has this quandary. What has the voice on the phone been asking her to do? Check, Check the children. children. She- what is she there doing? She's the babysitter. Everything in her would say, run out the door right now. But she hesitates, and she looks up the stairs, because the you, children... You hear a door opening. <laughs> yeah, and it's, but once she can hear movement upstairs, that's it. She's going to go out the door. But uh, And it, it's a different thing if you're a babysitter than if it's your own kids. But I really like that moment, because, like... Usually you just say, okay, bullshit, just run out of the house, just run yeah. out of the house. Yeah, but kids are. there's two kids upstairs, and you are responsible. And you're getting paid $8 an hour. You know, <laughs> exactly. Certain shit you got to do. Uh, and again, it works less so in the in the second. Uh, she knows that he's there because she gets a phone call in the restaurant, and she's super paranoid, and everybody's placating her, like same way that she got the phone calls in the past. But this time, you know, the killer is specifically targeting her. He doesn't even kill her husband, which I'd really thought, at least give us that. <laughs> yeah. Well, why is he targeting her? There's, it I seems guess just random at the beginning. But He feels that it's her fault he got caught, I guess, but I don't know. They did take the time to say her face was in the paper, so there's oh, okay. a reason that so he, he saw her. So maybe noticed that again. And... But um, I don't know. It's a very problematic film, but I understand where its influence is. And uh, if you wanted to watch the first 20 minutes and stop, I would invite you to do so. I think so, But yeah. I do think that the first 20 minutes are worthwhile. And uh, if you want to stick it out, uh, do so. Anything else you want to no, say about I, that? I agree with that. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't think, I don't know if people watch short films, so... <laughs> exactly. If you, if you wanted to make money, I guess, if you want people to see a short film, I better make it 90 minutes. <laughs> Halloween night. A small American town, 15 years ago. Michael? I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, Yes. John Carpenter had done a couple of films before this, and they were significantly successful. 
Dark Star was a student film they did with Dan O'Bannon, uh, the guy who would bring us later bring us Return of the Living Dead. Mm. And the student film was considered such a success that they actually poured more money into it, had them add 15, 20 minutes and release it as a theatrical film. And uh, shortly before Halloween came out, uh, Carpenter had released a film called Assault on Precinct 13, which okay. is actually, it's, it's dated, but it's a fairly decent you know, action movie for its time. Um, so next on the roster, uh, he comes up with Halloween. Basically, the package did it. In order to get the movie made, he basically agreed that he was going to do a movie on the subject of Halloween that involved babysitters and that was under, I think, a million dollars or maybe even less than well, that. Oh, I think. Like 800000 It cost 300000 Was it 300 so, It was it appalling. Was, oh, yeah, that's right, because he offered, he lowballed the offer. He said, I can do it for 250 but they ended up spending three or whatever. But it was, the point is, it was a very small budget film. Price of a couple cameras and. And uh, when he bought or when he signed to do the film, he didn't have a script. He had Halloween and babysitters were the essential elements. Action! And go make your movie. Here's your check. Go make your movie. And Carpenter brought us Halloween. There's lots of connections that you can talk about between Halloween and the previous films. Most obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis is Janet Lee's daughter. Janet Lee was killed in the shower in Psycho. Um, Coincidence? Yes. The uh, faceless mask that they give Mike Myers, the killer, to wear in this film, which was actually... Uh, Trivia hounds out there. A William Shatner mask. Who? Uh, who was also uh, Star Trek was Gunnar Hansen's favorite TV show. Oh my God! This no, is, it's I'm all kidding. Connected. I made that up. But, <laughs> but there's something about that—the fact that it's like a wash mask, just a plain white mask. It's not a visage of flesh like Leatherface, but it's almost a blank slate. Instead of going for sort of this weird psychological or psychosexual. There, there, there is echoes of you know homosexuality being scary and bad that you could argue were implanted within Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre anyway. It, but in this case, what you're we not have, bringing that here, are you? Yeah. In this case, what we have is a blank slate. In fact, they didn't refer to him as Michael Myers. The, the popular culture embraced Michael Myers. John Carpenter always wanted this killer to be known as the Shape. Well, they call him Michael Myers in the movie. Yeah. He's doctor and. Yeah, no, that's his name. But yeah. the idea, I think that the, the the thing that they're trying to sell is that his uh, he was born this kid named Michael Myers, but he's the shape. Okay. He's this force. Well, that's of what he's credited in the credits, right? Yeah. Um, he's this force of evil, and I, I think even if you could sit down and have a conversation with Michael Myers, he wouldn't be able to tell you why he was evil. There isn't a reason necessarily why he's evil. Um, for some reason, this little boy one day, you know, just snaps and becomes the embodiment of all things awful. Whereas Psycho, we had a whole explanation at the end, what happened, why is he the way he is. This, we're given no explanation, nope. and uh, he just, it's a story about a little, a sweet little boy who... <laughs> Kills his sister. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he puts on his clown outfit. Well, I don't know. I, why does he kill his sister? Maybe he's wearing his clown outfit. Maybe he wants to go trick-or-treating, but his sister decided to blow her boyfriend instead, so... I don't know. Maybe there's no reason. But uh, so he goes upstairs. We get the killer point of view with the mask on, which was kind of something. New I think that was new at that point. It had been done before. I've talked about like uh, in Black Christmas, the point okay. of view of the killer is exclusive almost to that movie. Uh, it predates Halloween, but it does a lot of the things Halloween did 
beforehand. I'm not going to accuse Carpenter of stealing. I honestly don't think that he was. Black Christmas has sort of been discovered later on. Yeah. But um, at the time, he was just, you know, he was trying to please his producers. They wanted a Halloween-themed movie about babysitters, and he was going to deliver the cards. And so, so he goes upstairs, watches his naked sister brush her hair for a little while, <laughs> which, you know, we've all done that, right? <laughs> we've all been there. <laughs> and then... Uh, and then stabs the the hell out of her. The moment I like is when he goes downstairs then and uh, he's standing on the sidewalk with a bloody knife. His parents conveniently show up right at that moment and, and uh, pull off the mask and say, Michael? Yeah. <laughs> and then that's all. And then the camera pans away and they just stand there looking rather disappointed with it, but nothing really much else. And you're talking about it. It feels like about, you know, a span of 20, 25 seconds where they're just, just, staring just looking at him. At him and, what did you do now, Michael? <laughs> oh, you. But a lot of things, uh, whether or not they were first to it, a lot of things that you see in Halloween are things that will have reverberations for future slasher formula pictures. Um, we have the virtuous, sort of pure, innocent, you know, female protagonist who uh, is not as sexually active as her friends doesn't smoke weed like her friends does no well, she did smoke weed she, she does smoke a little bit of weed in the car yeah. I, that is true that's right there's a bit of the sin factor but you she get the feeling like she feels good about it she's she's less it, it, she's not about that her whole life isn't about getting laid or being naughty she's got a secret crush on ben tramer yeah <laughs> i don't know why i always remember that name because <laughs> you want to be i'll ben be on my, so be on my deathbed and be ben tramer <laughs> no i did not want to be ben tramer <laughs> I wanted to be Bob. <laughs> More on that later. Okay. <laughs> the very next movie we're going to review is Friday the 13th, and that starts with a point-of-view kill. And yep. that's not accidental. No, no, you no. Know? <laughs> like, much like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, this movie has a reputation of being this blood-soaked article. Like, this is a, one of the most horrifying, brutal slasher films you can see. Other than PJ Souls showing her boobs very briefly, mm-hmm. this is a PG movie. You could watch, you could air this in prime time. Almost this anyway. is played every Halloween on TV, and very little has changed. Yeah, and uh, it's the still scary as shit. By the way, yeah, it's, it's all mood, mood and atmosphere, and uh, I think this is this is a good. This should be everyone's maybe first slasher film. You could almost watch it with your kids. <laughs> maybe not yet yours or, or mine, but I think you know when they're old enough. To appreciate the genre. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's give them a little freak out and have them up all night, not able to sleep. Because the movie wasn't built on the kills, they weren't setting up a kill. Like, you'll see in future slasher movies, there'll be a character that has this one trait, you know, and that that trait will ironically be used to kill them. They're an alcoholic, so they use a beer bottle to kill them, or something sort of ironic or anything like that. This is not that. This is just cruel fate. Um, Michael Myers seems to be possessive of this small town and the house where he lived in, and he seems to run dormant. He's, like, scary and intimidating, but he doesn't seem to be active. It has to be Halloween. Yeah. And on Halloween, if you cross his path, you're just dead. That is it. Again, it's not personal. It's not like Leatherface in that he's desperate and horrified himself. Yeah, he's... But I don't even get the feeling like he's particularly enjoying it necessarily either. I think, yeah, Leatherface's family is probably evil and they've made him this way, but I think Michael is just... He's all business. He's just evil. And <laughs> I, I'm he here does. to kill, and that's what I'm going to do. I like the idea of him just being a force of evil. It's not because he had a white trash, you know, abusive yeah, stepfather. Yeah. I like one day something, something took hold of him. him, or something snapped in he his just head. just grabbed a knife and... 
And that was the day. And, and, and the fact that in, in his psychosis or in his possession or whatever you want to call it, it, it is specific to Halloween. I do think that much like the Friday the 13th series, there's an element of sexuality to it. Um, Mike Myers seems to particularly like to hunt people who are, uh, you know, you get the feeling, yep. especially with his sister's death, that there is some sort of a sexual component there. She was promiscuous and... Yeah. But why would a 10-year-old boy, you know, clock that, you know? It's very simple, you know, uh, Michael escapes from the mental institution and heads back to his hometown and, uh, and it's all mood and yeah. atmosphere and it's, and it's spooky and I think it's because it's, it's simple, maybe that's part of its charm or it's, uh, it's creep factors. It could be any town, it could be any babysitter. They're not targeted for any specific reason other than maybe is because she walks by his house, mm-hmm. drops off the keys and he notices them, follows them, but. She just picks her. That could be any babysitter, that could be you, or it could be. It is about mood, like you say, but I also think that maybe the, another one of the secret weapons of this movie, or two of them, crack that thing. We're about six beers in, so yeah. forgive me. <laughs> it's all good. It's been a long time since I saw you, Larry. It's true. The two things, I think the two secret weapons to Halloween, uh, the, part of the reasons that it lasts forever, is John Carpenter's score. Yes, I was going to say. Uh, that, that very simple piano score, which uh, apparently so beautiful. He, he based that off. His dad taught him to hit bongo drums when he was a kid. Really? And the basic rhythm, one of the first things they teach you is... And he just took that and put it on a piano. And it was as simple as that. It was just. <laughs> I have you know. the theme to Halloween on my iPod. <laughs> exactly. But Psycho, you know, fairly simple, stabby score, right? Yeah. Uh, or Jaws, bump, 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 bump. Simple works, you know. And uh, the, the, that, the jump rope song in Nightmare on Elm Street. Absolutely, it's the same it's thing, but a very simple nursery rhyme. I think this one wins for. I mean, it's just that. As soon as you hear those piano, those, those piano chords, you know exactly. I popped in the where DVD that I've seen countless times, and uh, <laughs> as soon as that piano starts, I never forward opening credits. I think yeah. I sit down. It's it's part of the movie. Yeah, it's part of the movie. I sit and it gets you in the mood, and you know that's that slow burn into the pumpkin and and the music. It's it's, it's that you're right. Yeah, and they play it throughout the whole movie too, just different you know that dun, different pace. Dun, dun. Yeah, I think the other thing that they have is Donald Pleasance. Uh, mm-hmm. veteran actor, probably the only name attached. Like, at the time, Jamie Lee Curtis was Jamie, just some kid, really. She yeah. was, uh, you know, daughter of Hollywood royalty, but she hadn't established her own career by any True. respect. They had Donald Pleasance for three or four days on the shoot. Is that it? And, yeah. They made the best He was it. the star, and that was a big part of the budget to get, you know, get some kind of name, you know. And he's also given, I think, in a lot of ways... Really cheesy dialogue, but yeah, there's he, something he overplays. There's something the franchise of it. <laughs> it's true, and the, the later we go into it, the more like the more it lay, it's laid on really thick, though you know. Yeah. But there's something about his performance of it. it. Even if it was a paycheck production for him, Donald Pleasance was gonna do everything he could to you know earn his money and give them their money's worth. And I think that beyond our own fear of the babysitters being stalked and what are going to happen to these teenagers, because Michael Myers doesn't have a voice, all of this background is given to us by Loomis. And because mm-hmm. Loomis is terrified of Michael Myers, we're terrified of Michael Myers. Yeah. I think those two elements, uh, more so than the basic simplicity of the Halloween title and the babysitters, like the universal sort of appeal, like you talked about with When a Stranger Calls, is being the babysitter in the big empty house and being responsible, even though maybe you're technically not old enough to be holding the reins yet, you know? 
Well, so you mentioned there's Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. There's Donald Pleasance, but to me the real star is PJ Souls as Linda. Yes. Really? <laughs> yeah, she was the, you know the girl with the red cap and carry. Yep. Right there. Uh, Riff Randall in Rock and Roll High School and. Yep. And that you know Halloween obviously, and that's where we get the we get a little glimpse of. Uh, See anything you like, Scott? Yeah. PJ Souls had that certain something in my formative young years, and she was uh, she was my first girlfriend, and she just didn't know it. She didn't realize that. No, I, I was growing up saying, thinking that one day me and PJ will be together. Oh, stripes, that's the other one. That's well, it. that's great. I'm glad that she uh, aroused something in you. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, she was the the flirty kind of party girl, and uh, in in Halloween, and uh, yeah, she kind of she it, said totally eight times in the movie. Totally. Yeah, if you know us, she keeps saying totally. And I know in an interview, she's like embarrassed about that. How many times? And I said, oh, I'm going to start counting. I set a little tick down and and uh, yeah, Several. Eight, you got eight totals. Yeah, and a partial nude scene. So now, did you get that? I noticed it here that uh, the little pedophile remark from Bob. When our first introduction, that's Linda PJ's boyfriend. Mm-hmm. They show up at the house. And uh, they've been drinking beers. They're driving in the van. And they say, okay, let me get this straight. This is the plan. First, I'm going to rip your clothes off. Then you're going to rip my clothes off. And then we're both going to rip Lindsay's clothes off. That's the little girl that they're babysitting. <laughs> and she laughs and says, totally. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, well, did that just happen? Yeah. Are, they, are they joking? But what I do will say is that uh, these kids are likable and relatable in a way that uh, a lot of horror movies miss. Um they don't do things that are loudly stupid, I didn't think. I don't remember any scenes in this movie going, why in the fucking world are you doing that? And Because unfortunately, most of the victims here don't even know Michael Myers isn't a, a person out right. there in the world yeah. until he's, you know, got a phone <laughs> cord wrapped like... around their neck or he's pinned them to the wall with a butcher knife, you know? Well, you know, in some of these movies, you'll call bullshit, like you're saying. Yeah. There's one moment in this movie where the movie calls bullshit. That's when Michael escapes and the doctor says, well... How would he learn how to drive a car? He's been institutionalized for 15 years. And, uh, you know, and Loomis says, well, he was doing fine last night. To me, the movie just called bullshit there, saying, hey, wait, how is he driving a car? He can't drive a car. <laughs> like, Shut up, we're making a movie here. Michael Myers could drive because at that moment he needed to drive yeah. to get away. I, just, I find it funny that the movie said, wait a second, he can't drive a car. And Loomis says, shh, shut up. Shenanigans. <laughs> bullshit. Shenanigans. I mean, I think it's because I've seen this movie, you know, 10 plus times. You start noticing now, you, you can pick it apart a bit, but it's it's beloved as a film from your youth. But when Lori's walking to school, she crosses paths with the little boy that she's going to babysit later that night. And they also stop at the Myers house to drop off the keys. And then they continue walking to school and they split paths. Yet, they're showing, establishing all these locations are within walking distance from each other. Correct. Yet when it's time to babysit, her friend picks her up and they drive across town. Going downtown past the the, uh, the hardware store that was broken into in the middle of a weekday. For some reason, the hardware store wasn't open on <laughs> Halloween. It's a national holiday or something in Haddonfield. And they get to the house where they're babysitting, and it's pitch black out by that time. So they've been driving, I don't know. All day. Hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, an hour. They leave the house, I think they say it's 6 or 6.30. That's and there's a sudden, uh, it's at the 35-minute mark of the movie, there's a noticeable change in light. <laughs> it goes from, you know, they drive by the hardware store. Which just went through the world's quickest inventory. They said, hey, what happened here, Dad? Oh, someone broke into the hardware store, but all they stole was one mask, some rope, and a couple of knives. So they, they did inventory the whole store. They wait, there's 
a mask missing and some rope in it. It just I'm seemed very reminded of Psycho in it's sort of painstakingly talking you through yeah. the story beats and making sure everybody understands what's going on. They're not giving you enough credit to assume yes, Michael Myers broke into the store to get stuff that yeah. he would use for was, his killing spree. And it's a half hour drive to the to the house that you just walked past this morning. <laughs> in an earlier scene. It's yeah. funny, I've seen this movie a lot of times too, and I guess I've never managed to care enough to, to call bullshit on that, <laughs> because to me it's just about babysitters being stalked at night, yeah. you know? Um, it, it doesn't bother me that much. It now. didn't bother me either. I think the reason I looked at it is because you told me to take six movies that... Uh, or five movies that I loved in another one, but uh, and you told me to, to rank them, so I have to, to find reasons. I have to find you know why is this one going to be higher than this one? And uh, I hate going to a game and seeing a tie. There's yeah. no no ties are allowed. I hate you know, spend money go to a game and someone says, hey, how was the game? Who won? You know what? Nobody fucking won. Yeah. Okay, ninety dollars. Nobody fucking won. <laughs> That's bullshit. You know what? We're gonna have winners. We're gonna be number one, number two, number three. Yeah. I didn't want to make anyone pass number three, but I had to. So. So I have to look for reasons, and that's maybe why I was being a little bit pickier than I than I normally is. Yeah. Well, I think what makes up for any continuity stuff for me is Michael Myers. For a dude who has no lines of dialogue, he has real fucking menace and real presence in this movie. And asthma. Just and asthma. But just like when you see him standing by the side of a house outside, just mm-hmm. stoically, just seeing him standing there, there's something disturbing about it. He hasn't done anything yet. He's just a dude standing there, but you're like, oh, shit. There's that one shit. scene where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is there, and, and he just appears in the doorway behind her. Behind her. And it's, she doesn't it's, all, it's all lighting. Like, yeah. That's, yeah, and he's... It's dark, and then all of a sudden, you just see his face kind of materializes, and that's. And he never seems to make sound other than breathing. Like uh, when he gets stabbed in the eye with a coat hanger. Yeah, a bit of a moaner. He's just like, it's like, what the fuck, you know? Um, and the most famous thing, and I don't think anybody who's seen the movie can ever forget it. It's really like the shower murder of the movie. Are we talking about PJ Soul's boobs again? <laughs> yes, no. Okay. Uh, her boyfriend who gets pinned to the wall. Yeah. And it's not just that he gets pinned to the wall. It's once he's pinned there and dead, Mike Myers looks at him and tilts his head and sort of like appreciates his work for a second. Yeah. And there's something utterly chilling about it. And so uh, it's so efficiently done. There's no dialogue. We don't see any inner life to Michael other than what we invent ourselves. But he he is somehow given depth by the tilt of a head or just his appearance in a shadow in the way that I don't think Freddy Krueger or Jason ever manage in that regard, you know? And and regarding that scene, this is, again, I'm maybe picking it apart. You're realizing <laughs> how that, see, that could never happen. That knife could not go through his body and through the wall enough to support his weight. So there I am criticizing <laughs> a, a slasher film. It's like, wait, because again, that wasn't even a wall he was pinned on. That was a closet. It was a flimsy closet. He was banging against. It was opening and closing. And right. Maybe every time I've seen this movie previously, I've loved that scene until you told me to rank these movies. <laughs> and I'm saying, well, you know what, actually? That knife is not long enough to go through a human body and through the wall and support his weight. And blah, blah, blah. <laughs> But uh, previous viewings, yeah, that's a great scene. <laughs> if you want to pull a thread and pick apart this movie, like you will. Even Psycho, like I said, the painstaking plot points that, that kind of suddenly dead end on you. That Like, why did we spend so much time on that? You never really kind of know. It's, just like, it's not misdirection. It's just what it is. Well, I, I don't mind movies spending times on things that aren't important. Um, because it kind of, yeah, misdirection, I guess. Or, you know, not everything that happens in your... 
in your life leads to a certain point, but but for me, like I say, I will be. I could pick holes in any of these movies, right? Uh, and uh, and I think I I felt like I had to because yeah. um, four of these movies could have been number one for me. So that's um, tricky. Yeah. And so I thought, well, let's because I hate ties. I have to go to a shootout. Yeah. And so one of these has to win in a shootout. So the body count, by the way, for this is four teenagers, one adult off screen, and two dogs. Yeah. For those keeping score at home, one dog we see Michael pick up and goes right. Yeah. And the other one we don't see dead, but they walk into the Myers house and say, oh, look, there's a dog. And he goes, hmm, he got hungry. <laughs> so and we don't uh, know what the fuck happened with that dog. but. <laughs> and that, see, that, that just goes to show how evil Michael yeah. Myers is, you know. He yeah, can kill as many teenagers as he wants, but, but you don't fucking kill a dog. And eat it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's too far. My, own, my biggest problem with Halloween, I hope you can help me, or there's maybe an addition out there. If you look on the counter, watch it again. One hour, 19 minutes, and 40 seconds. It always feels to me that there's a scene missing here. That's at the point, uh, Lori, she outruns him back to the house. She gets inside, locks the door, yells at the kids, go hide, hide. And she doesn't leave that room. And then all of a sudden, it feels like there's a scene missing because she looks, she's in the room all by herself. And the mood just kind of changes. She looks at the window and the window's open. And somehow in that time frame, Michael got in the house and he's hiding behind the couch. Right. But it, it just doesn't. It feels it like something's too busy. quick. How, how did he get? How did he get there? She beat him to the house. Yeah. And she got inside. She never left that room. Yeah. And I always, I always forget about this, and because I, I love the movie, and you watch it, and you just, when it happens, I think, wait a second, how did he get there? And then, but the movie moves on so fast from there, you forget about it until, yeah. until Rank and Review tells you to pick apart movies. <laughs> I've always wondered. It feels like there's a, a deleted scene that they took out for some reason that I've never seen. Well, maybe they had a shot but, of him approaching the house or ducking in the window really quickly, or a or, or background shot. But Carpenter decided it would be more impactful for the audience not to see him until he decided. And maybe that goes with him being the shape and just materializing. But I think Michael is a human being. He yeah. can't just, you know, he's not a spiritual or a ghost entity yeah. or something. So. Well, and this is, again, something we'll keep on talking about other movies peripheral to this. But when you look at the Friday the 13th series, Jason starts teleporting. You know, he's wherever that, he needs to be to kill the next victim. <laughs> um, Another thing that this movie establishes for future slasher movies is the uh, he's not dead yet. I'm, open-ended. Where, well, she kills him twice <laughs> and then right as soon as she kills him she has a knife in her hand and she throws it. Like she doesn't just drop it. She goes, well, this is over. <laughs> and just throws the knife across the room and, and then he gets up. Then he attacks her again in the closet. She stabs him in the eye or the neck. Mm-hmm. Or I think it was the eye in that yeah. one, with the hanger. And then she walks over him, throws the knife on the floor. And <laughs> but in a way, it's not the final boost scare, which is what I like. What we're going to see soon yeah, is, is this need for horror movies to have a big boo at the end of the movie that make everyone jump. Yeah, the carry scare, right? Yeah, and Halloween doesn't do that. Instead of a big boo at the end, they send you out of the theater, and Michael Myers was not caught. You know? Yeah, he could be in at. Uh, he's in your backyard right now when you get home from the theater. And mm-hmm. he's, uh, Evil is punished fairly definitively in movies previous to this. Halloween, whether they meant to at the time, franchised themselves almost instantly by a making a shit ton of money and b leaving their you know mute killer. Well, it's yeah, perfectly free set up for a sequel. But I mean, he, this is even before sequels, right? <laughs> Where sequels weren't a thing you did in 
78. Were they? Or? Not, they weren't common. No. They weren't like, you didn't make a horror expect- movie planning gonna- to make a franchise of no. horror. They didn't make Halloween and say, you know, we're going to make like nine of these things and we're going to make so much fucking money. Yeah. I'm going to have so many new houses for this. And, uh. Yeah, they said, let's go make a Boogeyman movie and spend $300,000. And- I think warts and all, I kind of think Halloween's a fairly amazing slash movie. It's, it's well shot. It's well put together and. It's good. One thing in Michael's favor, as opposed to a lot of these other killers, is he's taken seriously and he continues to be taken seriously. Whereas Freddy gets a little bit silly near the end. Um, you know, Jason, he's not in the fir- Friday the 13th, but, uh, you know, he becomes kind of, you know, humorous. He goes to space. He takes yeah. Manhattan. You know, Leatherface puts on women's clothing. So, I mean, but Michael is just this guy that you just don't want to fuck with. So. Yeah. Oh, and there I, is a weird timeless quality to this movie. I mean, you I can so. tell it was made in the late seventies, early eighties, but it it ages really well. Like, yeah, there's no no cell phones in anyone's pockets, so yeah. <laughs> I mean that ruined horror movies having having a cell phone. Eleven. Twelve. Friday, the thirteenth. You may only see it once, but that will be enough. Friday, the 13th. What you see with Friday the 13th is a uh, young filmmaker, Sean S. Cunningham, who had uh, produced a uh, fairly infamous uh, torture porny film for Wes Craven called The Last House on the Left. Mm-hmm. And had subsequently been working on largely kids' films and TV pilots. Saw all the money that was being made off of this very cheaply made Halloween and said, "Me too." Yeah, unabashedly. Exactly. Yep. Unabashedly, he said, "We want to make a Halloween movie. How do we find a place where we can isolate kids and kill them? That's not a babysitter." Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can. They cut and paste qualities from Halloween and from other horror and slasher movies. The real thing that I think distinguishes Friday the 13th is Tom Savini and the prosthetic makeup effects. Where Halloween and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Psycho and and When a Stranger Calls go right up to the point of violence without actually getting down and getting their hands dirty. Friday the 13th kind of lets fly where those movies are restrained. They show you what happens when the knife touches skin. Exactly. And... I don't think it can be overstated the impact of seeing that. I think so. In 1980 would be. Uh, we were just scolding each other for talking about different movies. A movie that could not be any more different than Friday the 13th. 2001 and a space odyssey. It was made in 68, okay? But when you watch that movie in 1968, it's amazing. You've never seen space scopes like that. You've never seen, like, this scale of science fiction. And uh, so for that, it's amazing. It blows your mind. So similarly, with Friday the 13th, when you're in the audience and you see Kevin Bacon laying on that bed and he reaches over to grab his joint (laughs) and all of a sudden a fucking arrow (laughs) pierces his chest and a fucking geyser of blood shoots out, like, that must have blown people's minds. I mean, I know... Alien had happened just before this, so they'd had the, the chest burst from Alien. Yeah. So, like, they, they had seen gore and stuff like that, but I don't think they were prepared for it. And I think that 
not because it's the most amazing movie ever made or because Seanus Cunningham is a genius or that this is brilliantly written or acted, but because people saw that and couldn't believe they saw it. They ran home and they told their friends, I just saw this completely crazy movie. You have to see it. And they would go out again, right? And it's it's funny you say it's, you know, the Halloween influence, you know, slash ripoff is what it's referred to. But I think, yeah, there's there's more to it than just, I think, you can't really just call it a ripoff, even though you're, you're right, the director called it a ripoff. <laughs> I, I watched a special feature on the DVD, Victor Miller, the writer. His words on the reunion, he said... Uh, Cunningham called him and said, Halloween's making a lot of money, let's rip it off. And those are his exact <laughs> words. He said, no word of a lie. That's, so, that's fine. So he said, okay, how do you make a horror movie? They had no idea. Okay, what do we do? So they went to see Halloween and figured out the format. And he laid it out like this. He said, you take a prior evil, which has happened before the main part of the movie, have a group of randy teens who are outside the reach of help from authorities, and you knock them off one by one, especially the ones who fornicate. Mm -hmm. And then they made a movie. So... Yeah, that's that's Halloween, but I think they they did they upped the ante. They said let's let's show what Halloween didn't show. Michael Myers liked to strangle people. Let's let's yeah. slit people's throats in this one. And, and I think this is where the slasher movies that you and I sort of understand to be that we watched a lot in the mid to late '80s is really crystallized. Yep, Halloween influenced Friday the Thirteenth, and Friday the Thirteenth I think influenced about you know 400 movies yeah. after. Boobs, blood sex and violence and we're not going to pretend that that's not what we're about we are about sex and violence and that is okay everyone just fucking relax <laughs> you know but the other thing they changed was uh, halloween was in the city that was the suburbs and uh, this took you out to a secluded campground um mm -hmm. kind of a rustic it looked like the cabins had no power no running water except for the main the main one but mm -hmm. i i loved i loved the setting i think what jaws after when you saw jaws Everyone played Jaws when they went swimming in a pool right. or in a lake. When we went camping after that, I was always playing Friday, Friday the 13th. 13th. Yeah, it's like, man, we're going to die. <laughs> Let's pretend that there's a killer in the woods and we're all going to die. And my review, by the way, is based on not this one, but the unrated version. Do you have the, Yeah, I have the unrated that, version as well. It's 10 seconds longer, but it is so much. Significantly. It is such a better movie. <laughs> that is like the best 10 seconds ever. That it, it, I don't know. Yeah, Kevin Bacon, the blood squirts out of his neck longer, goes into his mouth. We see more of the uh, first kill too. Uh, or yeah, the, the hitchhiker. hitchhiker kill. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. That knife slicing across the throat, um, the axe in the face. We focus on that a little bit longer. Uh, yeah, I just want to say that uh, a plug for that that yeah. edition. I have the box set with all of them, but I, I also have to have that ten second yeah. longer cut because it's 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 a slasher film. I want it's don't cut out the slashing. No, it's important. We get the point of view kills, and the first two kills in the movie aren't that impressive. You know, we see a little bit of blood, but it's sort of shadows of what to come. And then we fast forward to the, the camp being reopened. Yeah, and yeah. we have, at the time, which would be fairly novel, but what, but as fans of horror movies and slasher movies, you know, the kids coming to this community, and everybody in the community is like, knows the score, you guys shouldn't be here. <laughs> And most famously, of course, this crazy character of Ralph, who oh. informs them that there's a death curse. They're doomed. <laughs> They're all doomed. I love Ralph. But um, there's a great 
uh, false scare, and I, I, I like to call bullshit on false scares. I, I, I don't, you, as a rule, like them. Come on, Ralph in the pantry? When Ralph is in the pantry. <laughs> I, I, what is he in there? Why How long he was the, he standing in the pantry? But the great thing about that, I mean, it's a false scare, and I've said in other podcasts that people will do false scares while they're not telling the story, right? Yeah. It's just like they're going to waste all this time while they walk down a hallway to be scared by a fucking cat. Well, let's get back to the movie we were watching beforehand, sure. right? Um, I just think, you know, keep telling the story. Whenever, if you're spinning the wheels, I get frustrated, right? <laughs> but Ralph's jump scare was weirdly set up because the scene directly before that, a police officer drives up on a motorbike and tells them that he's looking for this crazy guy, Ralph, who gets drunk and likes to spread his gospel around the area. And the very next scene, we get a jump scare with Ralph in the pantry that we fucking should have seen coming. <laughs> but it's just so weird to see this weird old dude standing there. What are you doing in the pantry? <laughs> I'm getting some sugar. <laughs> You're doomed. And you know, you know, We don't know what's happening. I mean, at that point, what's happening in the campgrounds, people are... Or the hitchhiker died, but yeah. you know, maybe Ralph is the killer. We don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's the reason they did that jump scare, to maybe give a clue mm-hmm. or a false clue, maybe... Well, but. I think that they were buying a little bit of time. Like, they didn't jump right into the the, the blood and thunder, as it were. They, they tried, they made an honest attempt at atmosphere, and they gave us a little bit of time to get to know the sheep. Yeah, uh, um, I think the atmosphere in this is great. Crystal Lake was, it, it's, it was beautiful. The scenery, the, you, hear, you hear the the woods, the, the lake, the run-down cabins, they said. Uh, you hear, like, birds and crickets in the background, and... Uh, it's every time I went camping, my campground became Camp Blood. And yeah. it's, it's because of that movie. It's, it feels mind. like it feels like a real campground. It doesn't feel like a, a set. Yeah, they just let things be inherently creepy. Same thing with Psycho. There's nothing particularly creepy about the design of the hotel. The house arguably is yeah, gothic and creepy, yeah. but the hotel itself is benign. It's it's your motel you've driven by a million times. Town, yeah, yeah. And same thing. How many camps like that could exist? Any camp, any lake. Yeah, you can believe be it's lake. got the archery range. It's a little run down. They're fixing it up. And... Uh, we mentioned briefly that a snake gives its life for this oh, film. Right. There's the body count in this one. Ten people and a snake. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Um, that's again something that you wouldn't see in any kind of movie that was being made today. They actually killed the snake. They cut a snake. That wasn't in half. a rubber hose. That was a real snake. They just you could be you can decide to you know uh, this movie is now repellent. Nothing should be killed for art. But I will say this: if I was making a movie, I wouldn't kill that snake. But that snake is probably one of the most famous snakes in history. In a way, that <laughs> snake's life is going to go on way longer than it if it died of natural causes. Because sure. people will see this snake for coming decades. His family's still getting a paycheck. I don't think it's an amazing movie. No. It's a really good I mean, one. But it is kind of immortal. Because I do think that people will... Come back to Friday the 13th. I think it gets a bad rep when you're talking about, here, watch these six movies. One of them's Friday the 13th. And again, like the other ones, I said, okay, I'm going to watch this as if I haven't already watched 12 Jason movies in my life. Yeah. I just, this is the first Friday the 13th. I'm going to somehow pretend I haven't. And and it's it's a well-paced roller coaster, a little thrilling with some well-executed murder scenes too. And yeah. You know, the scene where the girl gets the axe in the head in the bathroom, I think it's a, it's a well-paced See, you know, yeah. you got the door opening, you got footsteps coming in, someone's hand pulling a shower curtain, and it's... They tried stuff, too. Again, she didn't... She wasn't just a horny teenager who got killed in the shower. She has a brief scene where it is implied that she's had a premonition of her own death. 
oh, she yeah, tells yeah, the, the dream. story right. about this dream where the, she's in the rain and the rain turns to blood, and she's always thought of it as her shower dream. She is subsequently killed in a shower while it's pouring rain outside. Mm. I don't think that's coincidental. I think they were sort of trying to seed stuff in it. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about the jump scare. Which one's that? At the end of the movie. Okay. Uh, um, if anyone think, hasn't seen the first Friday the 13th, there's a jump scare. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> if you haven't seen Friday the 13th by now, you're probably not going to, I'm assuming. But uh, I, I think that this was a, maybe a bit of an afterthought to the production. I, I, don't think, I don't believe this was part of the original screenplay. Nope, it was carried. Yeah, so. this was like... Uh, a lot of people take credit for it. Tom Savini has said that it was sort of his idea, and other people, they just saw Carrie and decided they'd throw it in there. Um, I think it's really well handled, and I think that it hadn't yet been established as this is how horror movies end, with right. a big scare. So I think the gotcha works. I think that the production did everything they could between the music and how nice and beautiful and bright and light it was. And how long they waited for to it. To tell you, this movie is over, she is safe. Yeah, and just the length of time that they waited was was key, you know, because you thought... Yeah. Everyone's thinking, well, maybe there's going to be one more scene, so they had to just wait until everyone thought, oh, there's still going to be one. And, uh, and the police were there. Yeah, the police were there. <laughs> yeah, like... they, they, they say there's even, the way that's framed, they even got room for credits to start rolling on the side. <laughs> it's true. And, and it's say, very oh, well done. Okay, maybe there isn't going to be a jump scare. Oh, my God, there he is! <laughs> but the great thing about that, and they didn't know that they were doing this at the time, but what they did by having that final jump scare was guarantee themselves a real franchise. Yeah. Much and, like... With no intent, I'm sure. Sure. No, not at all. No. Sean S. Cunningham was happy to move on to other projects, and uh, he still gets paychecks from Friday the 13th, but he wouldn't actually hands-on produce another one until Jason goes to hell. But yeah, once Jason comes out of the water, it sort of opened things up, and because we didn't know, you know... Yeah, because we're left thinking, what, did that really happen? Was that a dream that she had? You know, did she fall in? Because they say we we got you out of the water. Does yeah. that mean they dragged her out of the water one or yeah. out of the boat? Did that happen? We don't yeah. know. And but, and and then she's he's still there. It's like, wow, what's going on? It's, it's, it's did that ruin any of the scare for you when you first seen it and you realized, wait, the killer is like one of my mom's friends. What the, it's a middle aged <laughs> um, woman in a sweater. I don't remember the circumstances from which I first watched Friday the Thirteenth very clearly so i must have been quite young but even at that age the second i saw that woman i kind of thought she was the bad news i mean it's pretty obvious when you watch it with adult eyes but when you watch it as a kid um she lets on pretty quick that there's something bad about her right away (laughs) so uh that's what because we're we're talking about i've watched we're watching movies this week on this list a guy who wears human skin on his face, has a cannibalistic family. We have uh, the boogeyman himself, Michael Myers. We have a burned face dream demon. And now we have a middle-aged woman who looks like she's one of my mom's friends. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and then she has a slap fight with the, uh, with the final girl. And yeah. I don't know. It I didn't take anything away from me until I start watching it again and again. But, um, but then she also starts speaking in her son's voice and answering back in her own. You say, okay, yeah, she's messed up. She's yeah. demented. And, and we've already seen her brutally slaughter ten people at this point. So I like that she's a little bit of a tragic figure, too. Like, sure. I mean, she what she's done is wrong. Um, she's killed a bunch of people, <laughs> and she should not have done that. But her, her son, her son dry, drowned. And uh, it was more than she could bear. And, and that's what drew, drove her crazy. And so, in, in a way, you know, I, I, I'm more sympathetic to her than Is I am a, to, you know, the chainsaw-wielding family or anything. Is it a whodunit, though, because we don't know who it is? Or 
I mean, people complain about that. So, well, it's not really a whodunit because we're not giving any clues no. to who this could be. The only thing we're dropping is there's a guy, you know, breaking logs with an axe, and there's crazy Ralph or. But Sean S. Cunningham, again, and I, I appreciate that he doesn't pretend that he was trying to make the most brilliant horror movie ever made, that he no. sort of stumbled into this. And that's I think that's the, one of the differences when I was talking about Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper kind of strokes his beard and is like, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, baby. Whereas yeah. I, I think that he was more lucky than skilled in yeah. that respect. And this guy, he knows what he did. He knows that he was knocking off Halloween and that he got really, really lucky. And It's, it's funny, and it's the writer and director saying, oh yeah, we ripped off Halloween. I say, no, Oh, don't say that. <laughs> say you were inspired heavily yes. by Halloween. Don't say I ripped it off because Psycho inspired Texas Chainsaw and Texas Chainsaw inspired Halloween and etc. 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 And each That's... one tries to do something to one up or or take it a bit further. And I'm surprised at, at how well, in a way, my uh, opinion of Friday the Thirteenth has improved over time. I was surprised how much actually that I, that I did just look at it as one movie, and yeah, it stood up. I mean, it, it doesn't really seem dated. There's some because when I was like a Jason freak, uh, I would not have considered this high on the list of Friday the Thirteenth movies. Like, like I liked it when it was a little bit faster and a little bit more mayhem. Can I just mention one scene Please. That I, in this movie? It's the least interesting scene in the movie, but it's my favorite scene in the movie. <laughs> okay. And I don't know why. It stands out to me. Uh, I wrote it again. I'm, for some reason, I keep track of counter time here. One hour, eight minutes into the movie, Alice, the final go, Alice making coffee is what I call it. It's Alice making coffee, and it's over two minutes long. You know what the scene I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. For some reason, I look forward to the scene every time. and say, oh, here it is. Yeah. And all it is, it's one camera, and it follows her. She wakes up from a dream. Yeah. Uh, she wakes up, oh, Bill! And then there's nobody there, and then she walks in. Says, okay, I fell asleep. She's all alone at this point. Everybody in the campground is dead. She has no idea. And she makes coffee. We know. We know. Everybody's dead, and you're going to be dead, too, really soon. <laughs> and uh, she goes, and she you know, boils some water. When she... Wakes up, goes boil some water, gets some coffee grounds, prepares her cup. She opens the pantry where we already had a boo scare. Mm-hmm. So she opens that pantry, goes, walks in. The camera doesn't follow her. Nope. She's in there for a couple seconds. She comes out with some sugar. You know, she's. It's all about waiting for something. That's... And it's so quiet. You can the storm has stopped outside, so it's quiet. And I don't know. Some people look at that at being padding, but nope. for some reason, I, I just think that's the most suspenseful scene. And and it's. Because you're waiting for the killer, and you know and when it, the killer shows up, it's not in the way you expect. It's so quiet, and she makes that coffee, and then she just stands there waiting for the water to boil, and it and it closes in on her face a bit, and she just it looks like at that moment she realizes something's not right. I'm I smell a rat. Yeah, I, she realizes how quiet it is and how alone I am. Maybe I'm maybe it was two minutes of padding to make a ninety minute <laughs> movie, but. And I'm not alone because I, I looked it up. I went on Google and I started Google. I went Friday the 13th, Alice makes coffee. And then I seen, whoa, someone wrote a fucking essay on this. <laughs> <laughs> what? And, oh, uh, no. These, these things have been studied like the Zabruder film. <laughs> it's crazy how it's much funny. people it's, love it. It's them. always been one of my favorite scenes. And it's the most meaningless scene. But uh, <laughs> And I, I love gore. I love violence. And I love Alice making coffee. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you, the next scene that follows that is when she says, you know what, something's not right. And then she puts on her coat and goes outside. And, and that's when she finds Bill, like, 
nailed to the wall, and then she lets out that scream, and the music fires up, and it's on. And yeah, and then we have the the big final. You talked about in Halloween the scene where Michael Myers manages to get into the house, and we don't see how or where he got there. He just shows up behind the couch. And I wanted to mention a similar thing that happened in Friday the Thirteenth. Probably my favorite kill of the movie, Kevin Bacon. Okay. The well, well, we're getting the juicy sex scene. Yeah. Yay! They do a slow pan up, and somehow the two who are making love in the bottom bunk have failed to notice that there is a dead body in the bunk above them. Yeah. I'm not going to call bullshit on that. I'm just going to say they were preoccupied with each other. Well, and there's no electricity in the cabin, right? They had yeah. candles, so they could. Yeah. Okay, they didn't I, see that. I'm not going to call shenanigans on that. Sure. They have sex. She gets up, so she has to pee, and she goes to the shower, and he stays there to smoke a joint, and he is stabbed through from the bottom. Are we to believe, are we to believe that Mrs. Voorhees was under the bed the entire time that they were making love and waited for her to leave to function, to, to kill the guy? Because, again, much like your Michael Myers conceit, I don't know how she gets in there and gets under the bed without him noticing otherwise. Yeah, no, no, she had to be under there the whole time. And that is, and that's, that's <laughs> as disturbing as fucking anything else. That's something I've never really thought about. <laughs> And what she is this like throw mama from the train when Danny DeVito's just waiting for him to finish? But yeah, exactly. I could see Pamela Voorhees just flipping through a magazine. Yeah. <laughs> so, She's right. really going for a record here. Ah, <laughs> uh, the glory of youth. Wow. <laughs> you know? um, I'm She's not, a dirty old woman. And for the record, this is not me wagging my finger at the movie or anything like that. I still like enjoy the movie. But you talk about the killer just being where the killer needs to be to do their work. That's definitely a case of that. Yeah, and, uh, and she waited, and whereas Jason did that in, in part two, right? He killed two people having sex, but he didn't wait until they were done. Right? Nope, he, he pinned them together. That's yeah. great. But the idea of this, you know, 55-year-old woman or whatever, she is laying well, under the... Well, there's a picture of her here, right? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, like, She's wearing like three layers she of She had sweaters. a 12-year-old son in 1958, and, and it's today, now 1980, so she's, you know, you know... And today is his birthday. <laughs> the kids of Elm Street don't know it yet. But something is coming to get them. There's something out there, isn't there? You just see cuts happen. What did that, Lieutenant? I don't know. There's a coroner got to say. He's in the jaw and puking since he saw it. You're gonna kill me for sure. Did you do it? There was somebody else there. He was locked in a room with a girl who went in alive and came out in a rubber bag. No one knows where it came from or who it will visit next. Nancy, there's something wrong with you. You're imagining things. Nightmare on Elm Street. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. Wes Craven, who'd already made a name for himself with uh, some horror movies previous to this, probably most significantly Last House on the Left, but uh, I'm much more a Hills Have Eye guy than a Last House mm, guy. Yeah. That, that's me. But uh, basically what they did here was meld horror and fantasy. fantasy. And uh, I think that's the real magical element of this movie because... Uh, magical. Well, it has, you know, the lineup of teenage kids who are going to die and, uh, you know... 
a lot of familiar elements to it, except for this killer stalks exclusively in the dream world and is not limited to kitchen implements or chainsaws or the, mm. you know uh, he, he can affect the world. He can do. He can yeah. use your worst fears against you. He can cut off his own fingers and grill them back. He's like, there's no real way. And I think to, the whole using your fear against you would be explored more in the sequels as mm-hmm. it went on too. And but there's no way to right. escape him. Yeah. You have to sleep sooner or later. You can't outrun sleep. And uh, between the concept of you know trying desperately to stay awake but knowing it's a <laughs> failing battle and having a killer who has a much bigger playground to work in than any killer we've seen previously, um, it really opened up the slasher genre to really see that it... They don't all have to be the same cookie-cutter movie repeated over and over again. Yeah, and let's do some, something different with it. Some time has gone by since Friday the 13th here. I want to say what, 84. 84. I want to say 84. I'm not seeing it on the disc here. Let's say it's 84. Um, yeah, he just pumped, pumped it up a notch. And uh, for all the spectacle of the movie, it's a very low-budget movie. Again, it's ambitious considering what they were trying. And it's also interesting to note, in the middle of the 80s, when we had slasher movies coming out every fucking weekend every holiday on the calendar was spoken for by a, by a horror yeah. movie um, he shopped this movie around and nobody was interested but it had Jack Sparrow in it <laughs> yes on. it did it's Captain Jack Johnny Depp yeah, is a fresh faced Johnny Depp that's one of the real pleasures about watching old 80s slasher movies again is seeing people who were not yet famous and yeah. slumming it you know it sort of blurred fantasy and horror and gave made slasher movies on a bigger canvas than they'd ever seen before. And this killer talks. Yeah, that's what sets him apart from a lot of these guys, other than uh, Norman, I guess. Yeah. His, his mask is the burnt flesh of his face, but I guess we're looking at what he has become. Freddy has a lot to say, and uh, as much as... B- People talk about how slowly through the series, Freddy turns into a stand-up comedian and the, the scares start to take a back seat. I would argue that Freddy is still funny in this movie, I don't but he's also very fucking scary. He actually is really scary. I forgot, I guess. I hadn't seen the first Nightmare for, for quite a while, and I think maybe the sequels tarnished my view on it. Yeah. I mean, some of the sequels are great fun, yeah. but I, I think I forgot now, in the first one, he the makeup, his face makeup is different, too, mm-hmm. and he speaks... It's a little wetter somehow. His voice is deeper, mm-hmm. and uh, he seems just more menacing, and you look at his face, and it, it looks... And that even that opening scene where he's building the glove over the credits, mm-hmm. he just... he He's terrifying, and I've forgotten that he was a... a a scary figure. I mean, I'm not terrifying me and I'm 40 years old getting scared in my basement of, of Freddy Krueger, but, you know, I, I could see him being a, you know, a, a creepy figure in a, in a slasher movie. And again, we talk about music notes with a lot of the other ones. This one starts off, you know, just kind of that familiar nightmare music and, and kind of had that grin with that familiarity again. And, and then it's the jump rope song in this one again. Yeah, keep it simple. Like, yeah. it's like, you don't have to go all out. Basically, the nightmare theme is what, four notes? Dun dun dun, dun 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 dun, and then of course dun. the uh, Freddy Krueger nursery rhyme. But again, that that's all it takes to just imprint your brain. You hear those four notes, or you hear even just the first half a second of that refrain. You know yeah. where you are. You're oriented instantly. Texas Chainsaw had the flashbulb sound. This has that screech. Yeah. Yeah. The knives against the metal pipes in the boiler room and. I also don't think enough credit could be given to the glove itself, the Freddy Krueger claw. Yeah. Uh, Russ Craven just said he was trying to, he wanted to give him a a specific sort of weapon that he favored, sort of his thing, Mm -hmm. and he saw his cat 
clawing the furniture. You really? And, and, and that's where that, it came from? That's where it came from. Um, but there's something about that claw. And they're, they're like, like you say, they show him making it and that he made that club specifically to kill children with. Yeah. And that's the other thing. Freddy is a child murderer. Um, and I don't know if they ever say he was a, like sexually a sexual no, predator, I think in the re- but it's in implied. The remake, they they kind of did that a bit. Yeah, I, I think it's implied uh, that because he, he seems to favor kids, little girls for some reason. Yeah, he would lure kids to his boiler room and bad things would happen. Yeah, I think that becomes more problematic the later in the series you go. You know, if we're supposed to enjoy Freddy and laugh at Freddy, <laughs> and, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's true. The fact that you know, in, in a perfect world, Freddy, if he had it his way, would be killing little kids. He's just settling for being a dream team. Um, the first dream we get with Tina, that's where it kind of establishes the whole rules of the series, where it's like, okay, if you die in your dream, you die for real. Yeah. And that that death is maybe uh, it's maybe one of my all time favorites in all all slasher movies. It's it's so violently done, and she's. It is yep. the most impactful death of it, all six of because, the movies. And you're not, I guess you're not, you haven't seen someone die in this manner yet in any movie, really, in yeah. a dream. And you can't see what's happening, but you see the you see the cuts appear on her chest, and then she's dragged about the room, and there's blood, and there's screaming, and, and it's just chaotic. She does not go quietly no, at all. No, into this good night. Also, also <laughs> echoing previous movies that we've talked about, she's sort of set up as kind of one of our main characters. She's we the th- first, yeah, she's first the person that character. we're introduced to, and... Um, same thing with Friday the 13th and the Hitchhiker character. This all goes back to Janet Lee, you know, that yeah. little bait-and-switch thing happening again. Yeah, we get to know her a bit. And... Like I say, these movies do nudge each other. <laughs> there is echoes in each of them. And she also is the first person to have sex in the movie, too, mm-hmm. so fittingly she should die. If we're going to follow slasher rules, yeah. of course. There are certain rules to a horror movie. But by this time, Friday the 13th has come out, and they have let flow with the blood. And the MPAA hasn't gotten the scent yet it hasn't decided that they're destroying the youth of america and that they needed to protect the morals you know so we'd seen a lot of brutal deaths but you're right much like the shock of that arrow coming through kevin bacon in friday the 13th when she is lifted out of the bed dragged up the wall and across the ceiling leaving fountains of dripping blood yeah, behind her all over uh it is unfucking believable again like the first time you see that uh, <laughs> like and uh, I remember vividly, I don't know if it was the first time I'd seen the movie, but I remember watching the movie with you guys and the scene where Nancy has the dream in high school. Right, uh, when we were, what, 11 years old and yeah. <laughs> whatever, uh, my kid's age. Yeah, exactly. Jeez, where was my... My kids would not be able to handle this at all. <laughs> like, I would have to, like, I would I would have to, like, call a shrink before the movie yeah. started. But the see? impact of that cannot be overstated. It was this, like... I remember watching the that that girl in her own body bag being dragged yeah. across the the, the, it's and the dream it in was, high school. And- it was almost too much for me. And the fact that Freddy Krueger was something that existed in your dreams with Michael Myers or Jason, I can think. You know, if I run fast enough in a straight enough line, I will get out of this situation. Yeah, you could. You don't get that out with Freddy. Freddy plays with his food. <laughs> he does. <laughs> he likes playing with you and. More than eating, yeah. basically. And uh, that is another line with it of why, you know, I, I'm always more of a Jason man than Freddy. When it comes to Freddy versus Jason, I went into it cheering for Jason because, I don't know, there's something about the joy that Freddy takes in his torment. In a way, I see uh, Jason as like a guy who punches his time card first thing in the morning. <laughs> He's like, yep, yeah, I'm going to kill anybody who comes into my camp today. Go to work. <laughs> I'm Jason. Here for my shift. <laughs> but, yeah, Freddy Krueger, his, his enjoyment of it makes him really 
really horrible and makes him really hateable. That's why I could never really like Freddy. I like the movies, but I don't like Freddy. But there are times where I <laughs> yeah, kind of... He's not my friend. <laughs> there, are kind, there are times where I'm amused by Jason. <laughs> never get that with Freddy. With Freddy, it's just because like... Because you pointed awful. out when he cuts off his fingers and yeah. uh, he's like, Tina, look! And he cuts them off just be, You know, he'd mutilate himself. He did that and... That goose squirts out and he's giggling and yep. she's freaked out. There's another dream where he slices open his chest. All this shit and, falls out. And there's out. maggots and green and goo. That's tell me, Ekmo. That's that's like. Yes. And you're thinking like as a person, you would want to find something to hit Freddy with. Well, but I mean, if Freddy's willing to disembowel himself yeah. to amuse you, like what are you going to so do? You, have, you can't do anything to this guy. <laughs> you're like, yeah. And that that was a strong. What do you knew. Cut me. Look, I cut my own fingers <laughs> off. And I'm laughing. Yeah. And then he's running, that little weird run through the alley he does. Where yeah. Like, uh, the concept of Freddy and the way they use the dreams, like his face pushing through the wall or the glove coming out of the bathtub, these are all impossible scenarios, but because we're in the dreamscape, everything's on the table. Yeah. And, uh, of course, this was, like, ripe for a franchise. Wes Craven didn't really want to franchise it, but he was happy to collect his check. <laughs> sure, sure <he> <laughs> There's a funny moment, uh, a line in the movie, uh, where Nancy makes coffee. It's a three-minute scene. No. <laughs> While her mom is cuddling a bottle of vodka. I do love that, because it makes me feel at home. But uh, if my mom's listening. No, there's a she's line not. where Nancy Nancy looks in the mirror after she's been up. You know, she, I'm not going to go to sleep. And she looks in the mirror, and she says, oh, God, I look like I'm 20 years old. I did some looking on the internet. She was 20 years old when she filmed this movie. So I, I found that was... Uh, yeah. There's something about the look of Heather Langenkamp, though. She looks right. She's not quite a tomboy, but you can tell she's got some some toughness to her. And she's not an idiot. She's not run by her hormones. And she was, yeah, wholesome enough to survive a horror movie. And... But you know, this this is a personal thing for me. I just I uh, even in part three, which I think is the best of the Nightmare on Elm Street films. That, that's the Dream Warrior. That is the Dream Warriors. Yeah, I think... and she's in that one as well. Uh, you look at that cast and you look at that movie. I think she's one of the weakest performances in that movie, too. That's a personal thing. Is that thing. the one with uh, Patricia Arquette? Too? Yep. Yeah. Lawrence Fishburne's yeah. in that one, too. I don't want to spend this whole time pissing on Heather Langenkamp. She's adequate. Although that would be fun to do. I guess. She is, <laughs> she is adequate, but I don't think that she is the strength of the no, movie. No, it's a Freddy movie. I've never personally had a problem with, with her. I never noticed it. But right. Yeah, it's definitely Freddy's movie. Another difference in, in these movies, too, is... Uh, there were things that happened in the movie that were scary and gory that didn't involve a death. Like, like you said, the body being dragged through the high school and uh, you know him cutting himself. And, it, and nobody died in these scenes. Nobody died in these nightmares, but it was just unsettling. The imagery was, was troubling. Yeah. And uh, the tongue. The tongue coming out of the phone. Yeah. That was another one. It's, uh, they say it was like, uh, I, don't know, I think it was like a $20 effect they did. But uh, yeah, it's, it's creepy and it's gross until you start... That, oh, I don't know if we're going to get to that yet, but that's kind of where the movie starts to fall apart a bit, too, because is she dream how did that happen? How does the tongue come out of the phone? Because she was awake at that point, too. Uh, like, she was so exhausted. Or is that She's, one of those, because they start defending, oh, it's a micro dream. She fell asleep for a second. Yeah, well, and they haven't, they're, they're still sort of working out the rules of the franchise at this point. I let it go, like, that she was super exhausted, and she'd been staying up for so long that she was in that limbo area. Yeah, um, so you'll allow that when she dozed off. And there is times, I've been there, where I've just been so tired that I'm not even really clearly thinking. Oh, like the drive over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm your boyfriend. 
different now, Nancy. I think another one of the themes that I like about this is that uh, the communication typically between teenagers and their parents. Teenagers go through that phase where they believe, A, that they are going to live forever and they are invincible and that their parents are idiots, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, communication breaks down. The interesting thing about this is, is that Nancy's right. Yeah, she's right. Her mom. her mom is hiding things from her. And the reason that her mom's this, this ridiculous alcoholic is because there's a history that ties into Freddy. It's also interesting in that because her mother, understandably, is unwilling to believe that there's a dream demon stalking her daughter. The things that she does yeah, to try and help her daughter ends up putting her daughter in more danger. Oh, Hence, let's put bars on all the windows of the house so Nancy can't leave the house, and let's give her a sleeping pill and because s- she hasn't been sleeping. You and know? somehow a door that locks from the inside. <laughs> I, I don't understand that she ran downstairs trying to get out of the house after she went, uh, brought Freddie into her world. Yeah. And she said she went all home alone on his ass and <laughs> set up all these booby traps and. She's fighting Freddy Krueger or the, or the wet bandits from Home Alone. But she goes downstairs to try and get out of the house. Her mom's on the couch. The she was like, her drunk mom saying, oh, it's all locked. The door's locked. Well, freaking open it. <laughs> You're on the inside of the house. You can open it. But I like, the handle. I like that conceit that the mother in trying to protect her daughter Makes is actually making things so much worse. Uh, I thought that was a nice touch. And in sort of like the clueless way that, that parents try to reach out to their kids. I mean, do you want to hit the ending at all yeah, on this I one? Yeah, I think we do need to I talk mean, about the ending. The body count in this movie is four question mark or is it zero mm-hmm. I, I don't know there's been essays again written on you know what does the ending mean i mean you go ahead i mean first of all they lost me the final five minutes i'm i'm lost when i when i watch the movie like you've said before it's a good ride mm-hmm. you're into it, it it doesn't really matter that much until you really look at it and say okay well wait what did happen in this movie is this uh and the I, five minutes, when you try and explain the last five minutes, then that forces you to then look at the previous 20 minutes and the whole 20 minutes as a whole saying, oh, well, wait a second, what happened here if then? This is, if this is the case, then does that still make sense? Right. Yeah. I mean, you're the, you're the expert. I'm just the guy who watched horror movies when I was eight and say, fuck. And uh... <laughs> Expert is pushing it. <laughs> I'm a podcaster and a low-budget filmmaker, but that's, that's as far as I'm going to go. Well, I'm a uh, low-budget film watcher. Bidget budget. Bidget budget. Hell! It's one of those. The way I see it is that... Wes Craven's script, which was inspired, by the way, by real cases of people dying in their sleep. I think that Wes Craven's original script was that this was all a nightmare. Nancy wakes up, Mm -hmm. having bested Freddy, and then she gets up, and all of her friends are alive, and they pick her up and take her to school. And this movie really has been a nightmare on Elm Street. Nancy learned about her inner strength and about herself and some, you know, uh, about the, the relationship with her parents. She was, this is all psychologically being explored in her nightmare. And then she wakes up and all is as it was when she went to sleep. That was the original ending. That was the original yeah. ending. And, uh, you know, I, I guess it's not punchy. It doesn't have that jump scare thing and it doesn't say franchise me. It just says that was a really cool, visually strong fantasy horror movie. And that's what Wes Craven was trying to make. But, but the producers... But even if they kept that ending, though, that bothers me. I don't want to watch a movie and then in the last good. five minutes say... None of this actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I hate when they kill someone in a movie, and then at the end of the movie, something happens. They kill the main bad, and the guys who died, they come back to say and say, well, well, even they're, they're back. Yeah. Not, they didn't die. Something yeah. happened. Everything's okay now. It's, As no, it if out, you die in the movie, you stay dead, damn it. Yeah, and I, I understand that. I think I would have let it go if it was all a dream, but I think that uh, Bob Shea, who was heading New Line, who... Blood, sweat, and tears. As much as as much as Wes Craven had been nurturing this product for a long time, 
Bob Shea got this movie made, and he may be a penny pincher, and he may be kind of a little bit on the cheap end of the Hollywood producer scale, but no Bob Shea, no Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay. And uh, he did have to, in order to get the movie made, didn't get a back-end deal as good as he would like. So he wants this film to be a franchise. He wants this film to do well, and he wants to do Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Okay. So that ending doesn't work for him. Because by 1984, we're getting sequels made for It's happening. Yeah. Halloween's on three or four, and Friday the 13th's coming out every summer, practically. Yeah. So um, it's like, I want a piece of this. Let's... And at the time, New Line was a storefront operation. It's been referred to as the house that Freddy built. Nightmare on Elm Street made New Line cinema. No Nightmare on Elm Street, no Lord of the Rings. So I think Bob Shea was like, we need a jump scare ending at least, or we need to leave it open for... Yeah. For a sequel. And Wes Craven, recognizing how much Bob Shea had put into making this movie, I think was willing to meet him halfway there. But they even then couldn't agree. Does it end with uh, Freddy being driving the car, or the car having Freddy stripes on it, yeah, or does Freddy just too. kill her mother? Because you'd think that his primary motivation would be less against the children than the mother who was responsible for burning him alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, after arguments and editing and cutting and recutting, they took all three of those editings and they cut it into one. And you know what? The reason you have trouble with it is it doesn't really make sense. No, I mean, who's, if that's a dream, whose dream is it? Yeah. I mean, but why are we seeing that? What's happened? What does it mean? And as she's screaming and the car drives away, like, we don't know, we don't know where we're left. And the screen goes to black. But for me, at that point, the movie had been so good and so new and so different. It had raised the bar for the slasher already that I was willing to let that ending go. Hmm. Uh, Like, I I gave it a pass. Uh, I know it's problematic, and I know it doesn't, you know, as a story point, it doesn't, you know, make 100% sense. But that's the ending that we have, (laughs) you know? And... um, I've seen more problematic ending to horror movies. I think it stands out more because the rest of the movie seems so considered and so good and so original that that ending feels slapped on. And And it feels slapped on because it was. It may stand out more, too, because it is a fantasy-type world Mm -hmm. with no set real-world rules. So we have to to figure it out. We have to figure out what does this mean. Is this real? Is this a dream? And it seems through the movie, it's fairly obvious when someone's dreaming. They close their eyes for a second and they open them. Oh, wait, are we dreaming? Are we real? And then something weird happens. Yeah. And like in the school, there's a body that just drags by. Okay, we're in a dream. Yeah. But the last, I don't know, the last five minutes there, I, I just can't. It, that hurts the whole ranking for me. I yeah. mean, that's it, it does affect its place on my list. And then you go back down to the 20 minutes before when, when she defeats Freddy by turning her back on him and, I mean, she just seen him kill her mother, and her dad was in the room, and yeah. and then they so, all right, well, so I'm gonna go downstairs now. They, okay, well, you just saw your wife die, and I guess you should <laughs> probably go downstairs and do something. But they kind of, I don't know, is that a dream when when her mother dies on the bed? Well, because uh, she turns his back on him, and then she says, uh, "I know this is a dream. I take away the power I gave you. I want my family and my friends back." And, and again, then he goes, "No," and said, "Really? That's what I had to do." If we look at it from the perspective that Nancy was having a nightmare, and in a way, she sort of became lucid with it. She started lucid dreaming at that point. You know, no, I don't like this dream anymore. No, I'm going to take control of it, and I'm going to give myself. You know. So then, if that means back. if that means that was a dream, then her bringing him into her world was a dream. That because some people say then she never actually brought him back into her bedroom that night. Right. That when she went to sleep with the intent of bringing him back, 
She just dreamt. That whole thing was a dream. Mm-hmm. But I'm calling bullshit on that too because she set up the Home Alone traps in her house mm-hmm. and that little sledgehammer hits him and knocks the wind out of him and he gets hurt. He doesn't get hurt in the dream world. He cuts his fingers off and that doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, she sets off the little flash bulb and trip wire. He's getting hurt there. She sets him on fire. But this again, wouldn't happen I think that's dream. the inversion that's supposed to happen again in Wes Craven's original idea of it. Uh, all of her fears are running the show in the nightmare for the for the bulk of the film and that their fears are represented by Freddy Krueger, right? When that switchover happens, when she takes the power into herself, uh, and this is better articulated in the Dream Warriors things, like, it's not just yeah, Freddy, yeah. it's not it just is. Freddy who has powers in the Dream World. In a Dream World, you can do anything that you can imagine. And that makes you a worthy adversary to Freddy. And that's why Dream Warriors is fucking awesome, I think. Mm. And that's, I think, what, what Wes Craven was going for with Nancy there. Nancy realizes that the power, the fear that she is running Freddy, she may be the engine that is running Freddy, but her becoming aware of that is what makes her able to destroy it. And that could all be playing out in an elaborate dream in her mind. And in that part of that dream is her bringing Freddy into, quote, reality. Right? Yeah. So okay. if she wakes up and the entire movie has been a dream, you can still say, I just watched an entire movie that didn't happen and be frustrated by that if you want to be. But it makes narrative sense. I can see a through line to it. Like you said, it's a fun ride yeah. until you start thinking about it. And that's, <laughs> uh, and look at it, we're debating this like it's like it's something that really happened. Exactly. Remember the nightmare events of 1984 when those kids died? <laughs> But let's just say, you tend to be harder on the things that you like because so much of the movie was good. The stuff that, that, that stuck out really stuck out, right? Okay, well, this is the real bitch of the bunch here, because now, uh, Scott, I'm afraid you're going to have to rank these six classic slasher films from your least favorite to your most, and uh, I'm kind of glad that uh, my guests get to go first sometimes. For some reason, it seems to be like uh, high pressure to be the one <laughs> to lay their, their well, opinions naked before the world. But Tons naked. <laughs> Also, for those of you listening at home, we're not wearing any pants. Yes. So it's not just my... Uh, okay. Anyways, yeah. This was a hard rank for me. Uh, it's kind of a personal ranking. I, I sort of looked at this and said, well, how should I rank these first of all? Should I rank them on the order, which is the technically best movie to the worst, or my personal favorite, or in order of their importance to the slasher genre? So I kind of took a combination of all those and thought, well, where where would they fit? And... Uh, Keeping in mind the object of a horror movie is to horrify. So number six on this was When a Stranger Calls. That was the one that I thought was the easiest. It fell right to the bottom for me. Um, in the middle, again, I, was, I lost interest in it. And uh, I was never really, you know, never really scared with that. I mean, it did have the one 20 minutes in a good twist and a, a bit of a creep to it, but it didn't really pick up after. Uh, and then it got it got tougher. <laughs> and now the hard part. Number five, Nightmare on Elm Street found its way at number five. Wow, that surprises me. The the final twenty minutes, I found I have to take some points away. The ending hurt it enough to be second lowest on the list. I, I got even with the ending not being the best. I still recommend it as a, you know, it, it deserves a place on this list as a a slasher classic, and it should be seen. It's a legitimate 
well-made movie with, but I mean, someone Some told have me. to go there. Yeah. Someone told me rank them six to five, and uh, <laughs> that one I thought was the next easiest to put there, just in where it fell. Yeah. Uh, the next four. When I thought about this list, they all had a moment where I considered them for number one, but uh, we went to tiebreakers and uh, number four. First of all, I gotta say it feels like there's an established list, a rank that these should be in. Right. And and I felt bad thinking that I'm not putting him in that list because number four was Halloween, and it and it hurt me to put this one so low. I thought I can't put that Halloween this low. Surprises me as well, really. I, I've watched this film over and over, and I, I said it should be my kid's first slasher film. I can't wait to show it to him when I get home. But uh, <laughs> uh, if you put this number one on your list, I would find that totally acceptable as well. Um, it's number four here, and uh, that's just where it fell. Uh-huh. Um, even with PJ Souls, it, it almost moved up based on that. But uh, number three, just like Halloween, it could have been number one, but uh, Psycho is number three. It's uh, it's just where it went. <laughs> it's it's a classic. It's a masterpiece, and it should be seen. And that Bates Motel and Psycho House should never be taken down from Universal Studios' backlot. Ever. No, I know they've, they've talked about it now and then, but uh, no, that should stay there. And, kids, we come to the top two spots. All right. And I was so surprised to see that I put Friday the 13th as high as number two. Um, there it is. It, it, it's up there. It's got 37 sequels, and uh, <laughs> maybe not 37. It's got a lot, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, when you watch it on its own without thinking about Jason and the other sequel, it's an honestly well-paced movie, and it's got some great gore kill effects and uh i mean it it's hard it i felt it funny i thought i can't legitimately put this higher than halloween because the makers of the movie said this was just a rip off of halloween <laughs> yet i you know i enjoyed it more than halloween and i think as i said before halloween influenced friday the 13th but i think friday the 13th influenced more movies down the road yeah. than what it did uh in first place the tiebreaker for this one was the film that actually scared me and caused me to lay in bed as a child with my eyes open, and that was that was Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, and maybe it's a result of me seeing it when I was, uh, you know, before I had hair in my armpits. But uh, there it is. Even with Franklin being number or being as annoying as he was, uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's a scary, dirty, grimy, sweaty movie that uh, will haunt me for years. Well, there it is. And there it is. Number one. Well, okay, I, I'm sorry that I made you rank these movies. And as I've said, I had a good time doing it. I, I, as I've said many times in the podcast, just because I put something on the bottom three, that doesn't mean that they're bad movies. I mean, I arbitrarily forced myself to rank them from one to six. And I do find there has been episodes where on a given day, my list might have been different. Yeah, right. I, thought, I thought about that too. I thought, you know, if I did this again next month, would I maybe put Halloween at number two and yeah. Friday the 13th down there? But... I just it's, want you to keep that in mind because when I give you my list, because I, I want us to stay friends. <laughs> okay, I don't want you to have driven all the way to Saskatoon to do this podcast to have me spit in your mouth. <laughs> I was, you think that's going to happen? <laughs> well, uh, just keep your mouth closed here. We, did, we didn't go uh, a negative six for six, did we? We did not. Oh. We did not. But we only matched in two places, hmm. surprisingly. And the first one is the sixth place. I 100% agree. When a stranger calls is the least of these six movies. It, it's, I think it's because it felt like the odd one out. Yeah. When I watched these six, it was the fifth one I watched, mm-hmm. and I just watched you know, Halloween, Nightmare, Friday, and it it didn't fit. It seemed like the one that was. 
I think why I had to put it there though is it's the babysitter and the phone calls. The, that that slasher yeah. template that that we would see again and again and again, and especially crystallized in those first twenty minutes. Uh, that's sort of where a lot of horror movies are sprung from, like you say, most significantly Scream. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the the movie is sort of crushed by the success that it has in the opening. I don't think that the middle part of the movie is anywhere near as strong or suspenseful as the beginning and the ending, and nothing comes close to the beginning. And when you have a movie that top-heavy, it kind top-heavy, it kind of hurts. But I would encourage people to watch this movie, especially for the first 20 minutes, and especially for Carol Kane. I actually do think that she's really strong yeah. in the movie. Um, I don't think it's a complete write-off. I think there's interesting things about it. But I, it might be one of these movies that's more historically significant and interesting than it is good. I get it, yep. So, I don't regret having it on the list. But here's the part where Scott storms out of the room. In fifth place, I put Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> now, I, Is it just because we could afford to make that movie right now? <laughs> yes. Well, and I'm not going to say, as much as I was sort of pissing on, on Toby Hooper a little bit, I'm not going to say this was an easy movie to make or that anybody could make this movie. But like I yeah, said, no, I'm kidding. I, I think that a lot of the movie was the how the texture of it, the feeling of it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the brilliance of the screenplay or the amazing performances. In fact, as we discussed, some of the performances were nails down a chalkboard. And just the amount of screaming and the shrillness of it, it becomes an ordeal. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad movie. In fact, I think the movie is doing what it wants to do very successfully. But I'm saying personally, I didn't take a lot of enjoyment out of it. Uh, it it's, it, you know... I can, I can get that. I, I can totally get that. <laughs> uh, it's I mean, a very effective movie, and I wouldn't say otherwise. But for me, for my, you know, keep the popcorn coming and keep a smile on my face, that's not Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me. So that, I mean, yeah. I mean, the film ends, you know, he's doing his little dance with the chainsaw madly, and she's hysterically screaming and laughing, and then the <laughs> film ends, and I'm in shock. and and uh, Yeah. It's it's an experience, yeah. and I think I, I encourage you to have the experience. Yeah, it's, it's not quite the feel-good movie of the year, is it? No. Okay. So going to fourth position, believe it or not, Friday the 13th, <laughs> I put in fourth place. Okay. Um, wow. And I think that it's a completely serviceable slasher movie, and I love that they let fly with the blood and gore in a way that Texas Chainsaw and Halloween didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I am one of the people who actually love what, what this gave birth to. <laughs> I've seen it several times, <clears throat> all 12 so far chapters yeah. of the Friday the 13th series. So... Um, it ended up in four. It just seemed weird to me. Like, I didn't... It, I like the movie a lot. I get a lot out of it. But do I think it's a better movie than Psycho? Can I honestly tell myself that that's a better movie than Psycho? <laughs> and I couldn't. So no. Psycho landed in third place, which is, I believe, where you put it as well. Yeah. So that's the other place that we matched, obviously. Um, uh, like I said, it, there's charm and uh, to this movie, the fact that it is kind of dated and that the characters speak and behave in ways that or old-fashioned, and the amount of uh, narration that you get where the, you're hearing the character's thoughts, uh, sort of thing that we don't get as much often these days, you know. Uh, you'd find that a lot of times in horror movies or other movies when they're adapting novels, because uh, there's so much that you can get in a novel that you can't put in the screen. Entire passages are basically read while the yeah, person's yeah, driving a car or something like that. Or very obviously not driving the car. Yeah, right? indeed. Yeah. Um, stands out. But for the artifice of the movie and, and sort of some of the stonier performances, 
Does it work as a thriller? Absolutely. Does it deserve to be considered a classic? Absolutely. And is that Anthony Perkins' performance for the ages? Absolutely. I just couldn't put it lower than three, but I couldn't put it at number one either. And I'm sure that there's some Hitchcock fans out there that are just like pulling handfuls of hair out of their head right now going, you fucking idiots. (laughs) But (laughs) there it is. Um, Like I... in earlier permutations of the list, it was in fifth place. And then I thought, like, really? Is Psycho a better movie or, you know, a worse movie than Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Am I going to make well, that case? And that's what I'm saying. Was Are we looking at best movie or do we start looking personal enjoyment? Exactly. So what do I get the most personal enjoyment yeah. out of? And, uh, and at times, Psycho sort of could almost be a stage play at mm-hmm. times. and. I will, performances. I will say this about the, the movies, though. Um, I will probably revisit Friday the 13th more often than I revisit Psycho. Yeah, you'll go on a roller coaster more than a merry-go-round. <laughs> there it is. And well I, I can't call Psycho a merry-go-round. It's, it's, <laughs> but, a, it's a merry-go-round where two people are viciously murdered. So. But I think your point is well made. It's just it's it's moving in its own sort of vibe. Yeah. In second place. A Nightmare on Elm Street. Wow, we're way off. Yeah, we're very different. Um, uh, again, I think that it took all of the elements of the slasher genre and bumped them up three notches. And I gotta give big points for that. Uh, in in a crowd where derivative slasher movies were coming out left, right, and center, they distinguished themselves by, you know, doing something that was noticeably different and original. And You'll, if you listen to the podcast, which I know you, you have, I give big points to originality. Mm-hmm. I will go see that zombie movie where a bunch of survivors hold up in an obscure location and fend off the dead. And I will go see that movie where a bunch of babysitters are killed in a, you know, in a series of babysitter murders. But I will go in there knowing that they're derivative. There's something really exciting about seeing a horror movie, especially for the first time, where you don't know where it's going. Yeah. Where when a character enters the screen, you don't know that they're going to be dead in the next two minutes just by their first line. And that's what Nightmare on Elm Street brings to the table. I know Fair we enough. spent a lot of time talking about the problematic uh, craziness of the ending. But for me, that movie is full of crazy dream logic imagery. And uh, Yeah, fair enough. you got to buy in and say, I guess anything yeah. can happen. And, and, you know, it's just the last few seconds. I remember when we reviewed the remake of uh, Last House on the Left, I was like, Fuck, I wish I could, they could take those last seconds of that movie away. Yeah. It just fucking pisses me off. But it, it's not enough for me to say you shouldn't watch the movie. No. You know, so. See, the difference is that was about five seconds, whereas... Yeah, this is a few minutes anyway. Five to twenty. But. And at number one, I put Halloween. I thought it was so great when you said, I could totally understand and respect you putting Halloween yeah. in first place. I was like, well, I'm glad to hear you say that, Scott. <laughs> because uh, I do think that, in a way, it, it... Yeah, I totally respect you for taking the safe route out there yeah, right? and taking the, uh, the imdb.com <laughs> rankings and just saying, well, which one did they say is the best? And, no, I, I think, like <laughs> I said, it doesn't let fly with the gore in the way that Friday the 13th did, but it, it's a little bit more composed and worries about both the scares and the violence. Like, mm-hmm. the balance is the most right. And it is, in a way, a kind of the most perfect, quote-unquote, slasher movie that I can think of. Yeah. And uh, 
Uh, you know what it really might be? Is that fucking tilt of the head. <laughs> yes, I tilt know that head. that knife shouldn't hold the body, but there's just something about Michael Myers, uh, you know, admiring his work that is burned into my brain as much or more than the shower sequence in Psycho. Yeah, and it, and it uh, wins the best soundtrack award. <laughs> Indeed. So, there it was. It wasn't easy, but... Uh, very special edition of Rank and Review to give out some Jerry Awards. And uh, I can't wait. This my is favorite a... part, by the way. It's my favorite part, so I hope you don't cut it out. No, no. This is happening. <laughs> this is all happening. Um, my typical four Jerry's, we can do more, but my typical four, best performance, worst performance, what the fuck, and kill. Okay. So I, I have some thoughts on those, but I'm willing to, to do more. You told Jerry's. me it'd be one for, uh, well, yeah, let's go. Let's go anyway. You uh, tell me. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, first. Where, do, uh, where do you want to go, best or worst performances? Uh, let's start with the best. I, I wasn't prepared for a worst performance. But, okay. Uh, yeah, we'll start with the best. All right. Um, I am going to give, for my best performance, and I don't think this is too controversial, Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates in Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. Like I, we talked about in the review, I think that his performance feels the most modern of all the other ones. Mm-hmm. It's not arch, it's not, you know, double volume, trying to make sure the people at the back of the theater can hear you. It's like the actors yeah. don't understand that they're mic'd and the, <laughs> that this thing can be controlled, you know. Um, it doesn't. There's nothing artificial about it. And his nervous energy, you know, if you were able to watch Psycho knowing nothing about it, Within five seconds of Norman Bates showing up, you know something's off with them. You just know. Even the way he walks, even sequences without dialogue, there's something about the jitteriness of his movement uh, that, yeah, I don't know. I have to give it to uh, Anthony Perkins for Psycho. Oh, so he's not even a nomination. You're just saying that's the winner. That, that's that's who I would give it. To. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You want some nominee? I guess I could give you some. Nominations <laughs> no, he's, he's he is the winner. Okay, <laughs> we're I on mean, the same page. So yeah, I thought you were throwing. We can talk about some other good performances I, I if you want, but that's where I would immediately went. Yeah, he's the first person I thought of, and and I think he's the easy winner. Mm-hmm. Um, the other ones down the list, I think Donald Pleasance in Halloween. Mm-hmm. Uh, you give Freddie a. Robert Englund in the shot for that, sure. but uh, the other one for me, uh, not for you probably, would be uh, Marilyn Burns for Sally Hardesty in Texas Chainsaw. She commits a hundred percent. I mean, by the time she she's screamed dramatically, and uh, but that produced the terror for me. Anyway. I complained about the amount of screaming in the movie. <laughs> I did, but it's it completely authentic. It yeah. It's completely authentic. Like I buy her terror. Yeah, that's that's and, in a and, horror movie. I, I guess another movie might even say dial down the screaming it's getting kind of shrill but you know not Toby Hooper is like no we're gonna listen no. to you hysterical and when that fucking car drives away and she's like laughing hysterically yeah. as she's being driven away from this loony bin Blood uh, you totally believe it you totally believe it she earned that movie and uh, yeah I, I think the performance is strong but it is it's shrill yeah yeah so I mean easy Anthony Perkins is yeah. without a question 
comparable, I think, to the performance you were just talking about from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. A lot of people don't like uh, Heather from the Blair Witch Project. Oh, yeah. She's crying and screaming and, and crappy the whole time. And I just read that as authentic. That's what somebody looks like when they break down psychologically and physically, you know? And so, yeah, points to that. But I, yeah, I don't think that Perkins had a lot of, a lot of competition. Yeah, and plus, she really got her finger cut. For real. Yeah. yeah. That's commitment to a bit. That's what we call that in the show business. The pump won't work. This fucking cut me. <laughs> Roll film! This is Ed Wood. So, worst performance? You want to go there? Uh, yeah, who are we looking at? The dude in the wheelchair. Oh, Franklin. Franklin. I'm not sure the name of the actor. I can spoil that. You know that what? Yeah, I I don't know if... I didn't really enjoy the uh, the investigator in When a Stranger Calls either, but uh, or anybody. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm being harsh. But uh, Franklin, for me, I thought he really annoyed me almost to the point of just being legitimately annoyed. <laughs> like in the movie. So... Well, and I think that well, there's room for a character like that. I like the idea of a character who is difficult and is I hard to know. He just wouldn't stop, though. Yeah. And, and, and it's the scene when he's blowing raspberries. That's when I just think, why? Stop it. Oh, my God. I think we needed a moment where we understood why everybody put up with him. And we never were given that. Yeah, he's just because, like, he's your fucking brother. You yeah. have to drag him along and... And even he would say that. Nobody wants me here. Well, of course they don't fucking want you here. Yeah. You're like the biggest wet blanket in the world. And uh, you don't want pity, and yet you spend all the time pitying yourself. So was he supposed to be acting that way, or did he take it too far? I think he overplayed his hand, personally. But part of that might be the script, too, because I think like if, if he'd had been that difficult and that abrasive, but we found out at some point either why, like what was the catalyst for that, or, or why it was that the group was putting up with it, uh, but because we never get that, uh, you know, he is irritating and he's one of the last people to die, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so we have to put up. up with him for quite some time. And I we put up with other overacting as much, you know, as much as we laugh and smile at Ralph in, in Friday the 13th, it's a death curse. It, I mean, he, he's playing that pretty fucking big, yeah. you know, and he, the way he rides away on his little bike, yeah. the adorable, but it doesn't spoil the meal. And he's only in two or three scenes in the whole movie. That's so yeah, whereas we are, we are stuck in the back of that van with everyone else. You know, the movie's already shrill and crazy. I guess maybe that's sort of part of it because the end of the movie, the last half an hour especially, is constant screaming and shrillness. To have that guy be so shrill and screaming through the first half of the movie, yeah, it's, it's just like strange. And it's funny because he's the only person that's disturbed by, you know, the whole hitchhiker incident. Mm -hmm. Everyone's like, "All right, that was weird. Oh, what do you guys want to do now?" And yeah. he's like, hey, "You guys don't think he's following us, do you? This is kind of weird." Like, yeah, we're gonna go hang out and smoke dope and. Yeah. But if we liked him, we might have seen that more as a voice of reason and say, why aren't you listening to him? Whereas the question I was asking is, why are you listening to him? Why hasn't he been left on the side of the fucking highway? When the first Jeez. scene that he's in, he's like falling down the hill, taking a piss. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, right. He's a pathetic character, and I get, like, it, it's deliberate. I understand the approach, but there's something about it. It's just too much. It's too yeah. much. He doesn't have to be likable, but he and it's shouldn't have been... Annoying. It's funny, as annoying as he is, still when you're slicing a person in a wheelchair with a chainsaw through his chest or something, yeah. it's still kind of, it's like, whoa, you did that to a guy in a wheelchair. That's, that's as much rude. as we hated him, as <laughs> much as we hated him, he didn't deserve that, yeah. you know? <laughs> and that brings on the big chase in the dark, the engine roaring of the chainsaw, but yeah, that was... Anyway, yeah, so that's my vote for worst performance. Are you in concurrence I, there I as well? I concur. 
See, we're lining up in this yeah, in the we awards. we can do this all day. Let's hit best kill. <laughs> well, I'm not going to give it to the Psycho Shower Kill, which seems like what you should automatically default go to. But for me, Tina's death in Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, her being mm. dragged up the wall and dragged across the ceiling and her body being spun about and, you know, inadvertently kicking her boyfriend unconscious who's woken up to this nightmare <laughs> this this crazed situation um there was that that was a very impactful death it was for me. and as i said i love that i love that murder yeah. um it's it's great and it's it's mouth your mouth drops open uh kevin bacon is the arrow through the throat is also good um i think you gotta give it to the most famous murder of all time though psycho. I mean, the cycle for me is Maybe it's just because of when it was done and how impactful it was at that time. I mean, yeah, Tina's is a lot grislier. Uh, but I don't really, this is the one we might have to arm wrestle about. <laughs> Man. Uh, leg it's dragged out more, too. Like I've, uh, <laughs> when I talk about the Friday the 13th, in a way, Kevin Bacon's death, he got in one of the, the best case scenario death you can get in a Friday the 13th movie. Because he got to have sex with his girlfriend. <laughs> And he was probably dead before he fully understood what had happened. Never seems to come in. Never <laughs> yeah. knows what happened. <laughs> so, whereas Tina, it's dragged out it and, and, and awful. Um, the Psycho Kill, and it's famous for the amount of cuts that they have and you know the intensity of the sequence and the reveal of the, quote, mother silhouette behind yeah, the shower the, curtain. the whole shooting of it is nice. it, It's really, really well executed. But I think that what that was was... Hitchcock trying to get away with as much as he possibly could. And what we see there is the difference between what as much as he possibly could was in 1960 <laughs> compared to what is yeah. as much as he possibly could today. It, and, it's, it's, and it's funny for a scene that shows so very little mm -hmm. for it to be as impactful as, as it undeniably is. And, uh, for me, it even it's, it's not even the blood in the in the bathtub and, or, or, or like the the swinging of the knife. It's once she's dead and laying on the floor, and they do that close up spinning shot on her eye. Yeah, and then the drain, and that's what it's like. People are being so floored by the fact that they're losing their main character, so they keep on saying, "No, she's not dead. She's not dead." They're like, she, we haven't seen the wound. She's not as hurt as we we think she should be. Yeah, but once they dead. do that close up on her wide open eye, you're like. Nope, she is very clearly, conclusively no longer with us. Um, I'm not going to fight you on that death, but uh, I just, just decided I would be controversial, I guess. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> WTF moments? Yeah, there's there's some of those. There's yeah. lots of them, let's be honest. Uh, and it depends on how you want to rate it. I mean... Don't, the, well, sorry. let's not... Don't give me your best one. Okay, just give me some, op some, some options. I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's some worthy... I we mean, spent a lot of time on the ending of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, I think the whole ending is, is kind it's, of... Because it's a head-scratcher. Yeah. Um, the, the same way as the middle 50 minutes of uh, Stranger Calls is kind <laughs> of, you know, what, what are we doing? Is this the same movie? Mm -hmm. um, the Halloween pedophile comment is kind of a throwaway line, but it's still... Wait, why did you say that? That's not right. <laughs> You're a bad babysitter. The murdering of the snake on Friday the 13th. Sure. Uh, again, it's jarring. You wouldn't see that uh, today. <laughs> Any any other minor ones? Uh, um, I mean, I've always thought that the Texan in Psycho, there's something just hilarious about that character. Okay, the, at yeah. the very beginning of the movie, the guy who gives her the money, the catalyst for the whole story taking up. There's just something about he might as well say, "Ah, I'm a walking talking stereotype, <laughs> and I'm here to deliver some exposition." You know. <laughs> 
Um, maybe you wouldn't react that way in 1960, but I certainly reacted that way now. <laughs> then there's the whole the whole dinner scene in, in Chainsaw Massacre. I mean, that goes on, and it's it's madness on film. There's it's just chaotic and yeah. crazy, and it's I mean that qualifies. Uh, um, one special mention I forgot. I meant to mention this in the review. I don't know if it's what the fuck, but I want to hit it. Maybe it's what the heck. The 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 lamest bar fight possibly <laughs> in screen history from when a stranger calls when this guy is getting a, beaten by a drunk in a, in a bar it's the least convincing fight i can remember it's seeing bad. It, it is it, it actually made me laugh out loud like if you if it was that bad a shot just leave that shot out of the movie because he didn't come close to touching him right and there's nothing brutal or ouch about that fight you don't understand him to be like badly beaten whereas like from a story standpoint i would think that this guy is is showing himself to be very pathetic, and when he tries to be forthful, he is beaten and pummeled by this much bigger man. And mm-hmm. it suggests, well, he's a he's a beaten child, so the only people he can victimize are people weaker than himself. Hence, children. Yeah. Right. I get what they're going for, but it is so horribly executed that <laughs> like it, it it brought laughter instead of what it was trying for. So I wanted to mention that. That's more of just a shitty moment than a what the fuck moment. But, <laughs> it's a shitty moment. Um, do you want my my prize winner, or do you have more to cover yet? Well, I don't know if your prize winner would be the same as mine, but I'm I'd, suspecting it will be. But I, I'm looking at the hitchhiker and chainsaw. You are correct, sir. Uh, you know when he the, he so gleefully cuts his own hand. That's. I have to say, for me, that sequence with the hitchhiker is the best part of the whole movie. For oh me. yeah. I really think that that guy gives the most unhinged performance of the movie. I got I'll give points to Gunnar Hansen, and it couldn't be easy to play at something as bizarre as Leatherface. So to give it any kind of depth, he gets points. But I have not quite seen that kind of crazy played on film. Not since. No? I can't compare it to anything, really. Yeah, it's it's a moment where I you raise an eyebrow wondering, like, what's, what's this guy's deal? I believe that he is crazy and dangerous. You yeah, know, yeah, I you, believe you want it. him out of your van. It's not. It doesn't feel like a performance to me. You know, like it's just like he's got me leaning back in my chair. So I got to give that the what the fuck award. But uh, that's where I land on that. All Have right. you any other look, words you'd no, like to talk about? We're in agreement for all of these so far. <laughs> look at us go. Uh, hey, let's, well, let's, we didn't agree on the kill though. We weren't. Like, I went for Tina. You went for the. the we're shot. close on that one though. I, I won't. I can see where you're going. No tears. That. No tears. No. Uh, do you have one for best scare? Well, let me think on it. I mean, <laughs> do you have some nominations? Yeah, the ones that pop out to me is that, you know, start with when a stranger calls, the big twist on the phone. You know, when you do see that shadow come up from downstairs, it, it is kind of creepy. And mm-hmm. I mean, it leads to nothing. I would have liked a little bit more follow-up on it. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, after Franklin dies, Leatherface chasing Sally through the darkness. And it's just dark. And she's screaming. And he's... The, the, Chainsaws roaring and the chase goes on for a while inside the house, out the window, back outside. It's to me, I find that pretty intense. Uh, yeah. um, you say, well, I'm gonna say it. Alice making coffee. <laughs> it's suspenseful. <laughs> um, I gotta give it a mention. <laughs> um, let's see, Michael Myers slashing his way through the closet. Right. Trying to get to uh, our final girl there. Uh, that's where I'm. My mind keeps going to to Halloween, but sorry, please. Yeah. Well, I mean that's. I don't want. I, my answer is is obviously going to be the one that gave me nightmares as a child. It's it's Leatherface pulling open the metal door and and dragging that girl inside. Yeah. Um, just because that stuck with me personally, so that's where I would be leading. But uh, I'm, I'm tempted 
I'm tempted to go with Halloween. Maybe not the closet scene. It's a classic horror template where the audience has more information than our, our, our heroine. But there's a scene where silly, silly, silly Jamie Lee Curtis has believed that she's fallen the victim or, or the Michael Myers, that he is no longer a threat. And she's sitting there catching her breath, trying to recuperate. And we see and over her up. shoulder that Michael Myers is laying on the floor. And he sits bolt straight up. Yeah, and we see good. him do that, but she doesn't. And I, I, I really thought that was a good, impactful moment. It's not that I didn't see it coming. And the piano kicks in, too. And yeah. It's not that you didn't see it coming, but it's just I, I love those moments where the audience gets more information than, than the character. And uh, that adds to the suspense. So that's where, off the top of my head, I, I would lean towards best scare. Um, mm. uh, you talk about when Leatherface comes out of the door and, 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 and grabs that guy. There's something really final about the way he slams the door, too, at the end of that. Yeah. Uh, and so the next time you see that, when the next bah, sheep comes walking through there, all they need to do to scare you is just show that door. Yeah, everyone looks at that door when they walk in. And, and say, oh, he's going to come get you. So, uh, and that girl, she runs out into the daylight, and, and you see him in full daylight mm-hmm. out that front door, grabbing her and squealing and dragging her back. But that's just my childhood memory. I had a really bad childhood, I guess. Now, do you have an award for best killer? Oh, the best psycho killer of this group? I mean... Well, we're about to, my friend. <laughs> I mean, Leatherface gets a nomination. He's furious, but he's sloppy. Yeah. Freddy, he gets consideration because you can't avoid him. You have to sleep. But uh, for my, I think maybe Michael might be the better killer just because he is just plain evil and he's unstoppable. You can shoot him. It yeah. doesn't matter if you're awake or asleep. He's I know. I keep, keep on... Yeah, I keep on ringing the bell of Halloween, but I have to agree in this case, especially because we're considering the original Friday the 13th, and our killer is not Jason Voorhees, yeah. but Pamela Voorhees. Um, I think that he is probably my favorite killer of this group. Um, Which one? Michael? Michael Myers. Yeah. Um, I'm tempted to give it to Anthony Perkins because I gave him the best performance, but to be fair, he kills two people in that movie. So I think that because of the higher kill count, and because uh, Michael Myers had to be as as intimidating as Anthony Perkins was, but he got no dialogue. Uh, I don't know. It, it yeah. works for me. It, it works does. for me. And the image of him, you know. Um, Norman Bates just looks like a, a skinny guy that, you know, be 90 pounds soaking wet, right? Yeah, he's not an imposing figure. He doesn't look intimidating He's, he's not right in the head, though, and so he will do things that uh, he shouldn't. Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to give it to Michael Myers. Let's do it. (laughs) Thank you so much for doing this episode of Rank and Review with me. Um, I I hope we can do another one. I know, you know, there's highway in between us. But uh, I said at the beginning of the show, I'm going to say it again at the end. No Scott Lehman, no Rankin Review. Oh, stop. I can't, uh, I can't even <laughs> articulate the level of love that is in the room right now, brother. I am so thrilled that you did this and that you drove all this way. I just thank you so much. Well, that's nice. You lit all these candles and you got a <laughs> nice bath drawn for me later. No, it was a good time. Glad we could do it. Awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah. Good luck. Halloween's still better than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> fight, fight, fight. I, I, I can't. I respect it.
Okay, well, that brings us to the end of Slasher Cinema History. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. It was a bit of a horror history lesson, but I had a good time with it. Please spread the word on ranking review to your friends and your family. Any film geeks in your circle, contact Ranking Review at RankingReview at Gmail. Please, by all means, seek us out on iTunes. Leave us a positive review that'll help people find the show. And if you go to the Facebook page, just take the time to like it. I just uh, like knowing there's people out there listening to the podcast. Thanks for listening to this edition of Rank and Review. <laughs>